This is the Pink Floyd Fellas, featuring your fellas Pete and PJ, leading you through the journey of the world's most popular progenitors of progressive psychedelic rock, Pink Floyd. Oh man, thank you for our intro from the maybe AI robot, maybe real person. We for, I forget which. Hard to tell. Uh, this Hard is tell. this is the Pink Floyd Fellas. I'm Pete. And I'm PJ. And welcome into the show, everybody. Mm-hmm. Everybody, it's been a long all time coming. five people who are listening, who are yeah. waiting at their iPod home docks to for a new episode to drop, so it'll immediately start playing. Yeah, f- to you guys, it's been like no time has passed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, zero time. Um, yeah, but like a, for like us, it's been well, actually. Wait, did I already? Let me. I think real quick. Did I already upload Obscured by Yeah, Clouds? I think it came out like two weeks ago. So. I did. Oh, no, <laughs> It'll sorry. It'll be like yeah, a yeah, month, yeah. but... So never mind. You've been patiently waiting. <laughs> Not bad. You know, I hear that Bruce Springsteen and Obama did this too when they put out their podcast, is they would just record it when they had time, and yeah. then it was, you know, so people were just eagerly awaiting. Are uh, you it was not even busy structured anymore? at all. No, Obama's fucking jet skiing. Bruce is playing three-hour shows just because he's bored. It's not that he like really wants to. It's he's yeah. he has nothing else to do. This he is all he can do anymore in the yeah. park. Yeah, he's doing them with no saxophone anymore, as we talked about. Last Which is episode. yeah, <laughs> yeah. What is Bruce Springsteen without the sax, man? It's a good question, honestly. It's still Bruce Springsteen. I can't in, yeah. in my brain. I can't think of one song. That you can hear saxophone on. But I'm also not a huge Springsteen guy. I'm going to guess the song Born to Run has saxophone. I feel like all of his hits probably have. You're guessing, though. Do you, Can you in your... Like, can you pick out a sax line in any Springsteen song right now? To be without... fair, I don't know a lot of Bruce Springsteen songs. Neither do I. I'm not a huge I. fan. So, so in that way, you're right. But it, here's the thing, though. I also, on the other hand... Every single Bruce Springsteen song I know, even if I can't imagine the specific line, I'm like, Might I can imagine the saxophone being on yeah. it, though. Like, yeah. <laughs> That's no, kind of where I'm at. There's no way it's not on there. So, yeah, speaking of, we're definitely not going to plug other podcasts, but I've been listening to a podcast that our podcast is not at all inspired or influenced by. Um, it has no relationship with whatsoever. And they're, they're talking about Bruce and... Uh, boy, I don't like Bruce Springsteen at all. <laughs> it's just, it's really what, he's one of those guys where it's like, it on paper, actually, it kind of seems like I should like him. There's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot that he, seems like it should sync up with with me, but just, it it's just not interesting to me at all. All the songs he, pretty much sound the same. <laughs> I would agree. I've never been a huge Springsteen fan. Um, I will say he's a terrific songwriter as far as like lyrics go. Yeah. Um, to some degree. And then if you listen to and then a some podcast of where you're hearing all the songs back to back to back to back, it mm-hmm. really feels like you could play. It feels like Bruce Springsteen lyrics are a little bit like the fridge magnet poetry, except it's all just like <laughs> blue collar job, truck, bar, yeah, you know, wife, like flowers. I don't know. Just like a, a bunch of like random imagery that you're like, it just feels like he's using the same stuff a lot. So I could see that too. Yeah. I've never listened to it back to back to back. I have heard it's a lot. The, <laughs> you know, some hits on the radio sometimes yeah. where I'm like, huh. Yeah. I also had forgotten I like the Springsteen guy. Uh this is a fun nugget from that show, and again we, we will definitely not mention what it is, but um is that so I knew that Manfred Mann's Earth Band 
covered Blinded by the Light. Because uh, yep. they, they made it revved up like a douche. And, uh... A little runner. But what I did not know is that they apparently covered, like, five other Bruce Springsteen songs within, like, a year and a half of that, trying to strike it big again, because they had a number one hit, I think, with that. And that so, rules. yeah. I didn't know that. So there's just, like, weird Manfred Mann covers of most of his, like, first two albums. <laughs> which is really, really funny. It's also funny because apparently his first two albums are, like, were not that like poppy or interesting or like getting kind of radio play or anything folky. yeah and so then it's just manfred man making like a super pop version of it but yeah i feel like there have been a lot of people who have done very well with springsteen covers and that's yeah. why i say he's a good songwriter like well, um like we talked about last week where we were talking about like the band a, a, a well-written song where it's like in any context you know it can it still is a good song then that's how you know it's all written it doesn't need like certain instrumentation or something to make it work so i think you're right that like anyone can kind of cover it and it's still a great song in any style i mean he wrote one of the greatest songs ever which is atlantic city oh i thought you were going to say born in the usa my political song for when i ran for office a few years ago with the my pillow guy yeah and they asked you to please stop yeah (laughs) you know what and i said send your fucking lawyers at me okay because I don't believe in that the legal system would keep my rights down like this. Yeah. Um, and that's where you, where I come into the story. Mm-hmm. And you hired me to do a cover, a sound-alike cover that's of right. it. And yeah. And you convinced me. The campaign. Well, you convinced me to switch it to Atlantic City. Yeah. Because you really just <laughs> wanted to cover that, which really didn't make any sense because we were in Anaheim. So, like, <laughs> it didn't make a lot of sense that I was running for political office there. But whatever. You know what? I, I lost. To, make... to be honest, I don't think that's what lost the election. <laughs> yeah. You know, although Anaheim, the my pillow guy, would probably do pretty well. <laughs> I'm thinking about probably. It. Yeah. And I think making an Atlantic City for the West Coast is a great idea. Mm, still, there you go. Yeah, Reno ain't enough. We need one by the beach. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I've always. That's right. Said. That's what. Yeah. That's what. That's what call it Reno out. by the beach. That's what this town would <laughs> like be called. Like Carmel by the sea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, Atlantic City Salt. That's a weird one where I'm like, I 100% know I've heard that song before. Have mm-hmm. never heard the version off Nebraska. So oh, I've I never have no heard the Bruce idea. Springsteen version. So I have no idea where I've heard it before, but I'm sure it's um, been covered a million times. The band covered it famously. Oh, interesting. I don't mm-hmm. know that, but that's cool. It's one of the greatest songs of all time. Yeah. And then I feel like every couple of years, a really okay cover of um, Hey, little girl, is your daddy home? Light My Fire comes out. Um, mm. the do- I don't think know. that's how that song goes. I think it's more like... Oh, you're right. I could go on for the whole seven minutes, but I'm not going to. No, please continue. There's a great, uh, I saw the comedian Paul F. Tompkins uh, live somewhat recently within the last couple months. And, uh, well, boy, time is weird. Honestly, I don't know when that was. (laughs) That was six years ago. It might have been August. Um, uh, So, but anyway, he had a great tag to a joke that involved Light My Fire which is that he was talking about the feeling when you're a kid of how shitty Sunday afternoons are when you're like, I haven't done any of my homework, but I have to go back to school tomorrow and like, you know, deal with all that. And then he was like, I can't think of a way to describe that feeling as an adult, except it's like when you hear the organ solo from light my fire. (laughs) 
which is pretty good. That is pretty good. Yeah. He's got an interesting relationship with the doers. He fucking hates them, right? He, he, I don't yeah. think I've well, ever heard him reference a song he likes. He just talks about how much he doesn't like L.A. Woman, Light My Fire. Yeah. And maybe another one. Those are the two off the top He of really hates the song L.A. Woman. He went on a podcast yeah, to talk about which it. which is kind of weird because that's, I mean, it's not a good one, but it's not that bad. To we my both mind. liked L.A. Woman. Yeah, I fun. like L.A. Woman. It's it's good until the part where he's yeah. like, Mr. Mogorani. <laughs> it's good in, up until yeah, that, that part. part does suck. <laughs> Did you know Mojo Ryzen? <laughs> Did you know it's you put Jim Morrison, if you write that out, and then what? you take all the letters and you put them in a different order? Did you know it's Mojo Ryzen? Mr. Mojo Just like Ryzen? I am Lord Voldemort Dude, and Tom it's Fiddle. Fuck, oh, whatever. my God. You think J.K. Rowling's a huge Doors fan? Oh, well, she must be. She's British. Are there more Doors references in <laughs> Harry Doors Potter that British. we've missed? <laughs> she must be. Those British people loved the American not-invasion. <laughs> I mean, where did he get his beans influence from, if not from Britain? <laughs> That's exactly right. I'm just trying to think of how the Doors could have been referenced more in Harry Potter. Well... So yeah, Lord Voldemort definitely. Yeah, Tom, I feel like I feel like there's a spell shit. where they do their wand and they go Raymond Zarek. <laughs> yeah, probably. I'm sure. Well, there is obviously the Twisted Witches or whatever the weird band is that they reference in those books. Obviously, they're a, a Doors, you know, a cover band. Yeah, <laughs> they keep it. It really takes you out of the moment when they're like, and then they're covering, you know, the Doors. Uh, and then the singer's songs, going, Mr. Mojo. <laughs> Mr. Marvelo Riddle. <laughs> well, because in that universe, of course, Voldemort was kind of Jim Morrison. It's when he was in school, yeah. he got into a lot of trouble because he would flash his dick while the band was playing shows. Yeah. So, he no called good. it his wand. Yeah. Oh, my God. How come they never did that in that book? Dude. Fools. I, there's no way that this exists, and there's no way for me to ever find it. You have no idea how much money I'd pay for a Harry Potter porn parody. No. Give me one no, second. don't even bother looking it up. I can't. There's no... I'm not. I'm writing it down in my there ideal There is book. no... Yeah, in your birthday gift ideas, all your friends. <laughs> you know what's great is that those movies came out long ago enough that there's probably a VHS porn... There's probably a VHS tape porn parody from 1999. <laughs> you think? You think they did it when they were still kids in the... I mean, they're still I kids always. But they did that SNL sketch, I don't know when, 2005, 2006, something? I feel like they were old enough at that point to where it wasn't weird because the actors were actually the, like... The 18. actors weren't young, but in the movies, they they would be like 14 right. or 15. They're 14 you know? or whatever, yeah. Yeah, yeah I guess I it know. probably is when the actors were over age. You know what, that is... Yeah, that's good. I'm... I'm going to have to start using that. If I'm into a movie about someone underage, I'll just be like, but the actor is not that age. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That's why we can be so into that bald girl from that Netflix show. Sure. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> also, <laughs> Natalie Portman was totally like 23 years old in Leon the Professional. So. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I can. Oh, I can totally crush on her. Yeah. I'm not gonna Google it, Easy. but I'm gonna. <laughs> how old was? Yeah, you never want to look up how old was anybody really, uh, um, except old old men. Old old men. What? Right. Who's the bald um, person from? No, is this like last time when you're referencing all these Gen Z actors that I'm supposed to know? PJ, are you gonna be bringing was... out Zendaya next? Timothy Chalamet. 
I just found out he's dating Kylie Jenner. You just found that out. Yeah. I found I out already got the made day that Kylie Jenner posted about it on her Instagram. It's the only Instagram I follow. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big J head. K head? Hmm. Yeah, you're a big K hole. Oh. Um, what? Um, oh, the bald girl from the Netflix show? That's that girl from that Stranger Things show, is what I was talking about. Oh, the one everyone was literally waiting. Not everyone. Until they <laughs> turned 18. A, a, a lot of fucking creeps. Yeah. yeah. A unfortunate subset. Yeah. Of the population. Mm-hmm. Okay. I didn't know she was bald now. Uh, she was bald in the show. Gotcha. Might have been a bald Don't know if situation. she's bald now. I think she actually shaved her head. What? Yeah. They've really fucked up labor practices in Netflix. Haven't you heard anything in the news recently, Pete? Do you think she at least donated that so someone could get a sweet-ass wig? She sold it on eBay to mm. some creep. But she donated the proceeds to charity, I assume. A charity that makes wigs. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) She didn't want any confusion. Her intent is for bald people to have hair, goddammit. She she won't donate her hair, but... No, she's got to... She'll get the hair somehow. She's got to sell it for them. Yeah. I will get you a wig somehow. Uh, all right. Well, welcome to the Pink Floyd fellas. Uh, welcome. I'm I'm resetting because who knows if any of that will be left in. We'll Knowing see. you, probably all of it. <laughs> uh, all right. So welcome to the Pink Floyd fellas. Um, you know, PJ. Weirdly, I have some some Pink Floyd stuff to talk about. Not about the album we're talking about at all. No, we're gonna Wild. delay talking about Dark Side of the Moon as long as possible. It's been yeah. months already. Why not make it a few extra minutes for you on the show? You can wait, you little fucks. But I have two two kind of interesting notes uh okay. here to talk Do about. Do we have a song for them? Uh no, no. Okay, okay. These are just these are just random fun things that I found this week. Uh, so the first one, I'm going to send you a link just so you have eyes on it, because it's pretty wild. Peter has tilted his camera down, so now I'm staring at his supple bosom. Yep. Um, just like whoever you're referencing on Hackney Diamonds. Okay. Uh, so this is, I was doing some Googling about all of David Gilmore's guitars, and as the internet and old men are wont to do, there's like an entire website. Actually, there's an entire website with different guitarists and all of their gear. So there's a long list of all David Gilmore's guitars, which is sick as hell. So somehow I missed this. So in my book, I know that they referenced him switching the necks on his two Stratocasters. And I skipped right. over it, didn't talk about it in the show, because I was like, who gives a shit? <laughs> why Why is that important to anybody? Like, I get, I guess if you're a guitarist, it might make a difference that they're made out of different wood or something, but... For our for the purposes of our show, not an important detail in Pink Floyd history, but apparently the reason he switched them is a very important detail that I can't believe my book left out. It is because in 1972, David commissioned a custom guitar body shaped in the Stratocaster style that would hold two Stratocaster necks, a double neck Strat, yeah. because. He wanted to play normal guitar on one and then have the action super high on the other so he could play slide. Um, and so he apparently, again, this is in the era of Pink Floyd where they don't have millions of everything. He had the two Stratocasters, and instead of buying more Stratocasters, he took the necks off his existing one. guitars yeah. and put them on this double neck thing. Uh, it apparently did not work well at all. 
It doesn't look like it does. No, it, it, yeah. It doesn't seem like there's quite enough room between the necks, to be honest. Like, I feel like the SG double neck that Jimmy Page used had a lot more room between the necks, but. Also, here's my I guess thing if the top it. one was the slide one, it could work better. He commissioned the guitar body. Mm-hmm. Didn't commission necks? I, none of it makes any sense. It's like, I guess he must love these necks. <laughs> but it's also, so it bugs me so much that the necks aren't the same wood. Right. One well, of them's a maple fretboard, the other one's rosewood. Yeah. And it looks abysmal. It looks strange. So anyway, so then when he disassembled it, when he was done using it, uh, this failed experiment, that's when he swapped the necks on his guitar. So like that's the gotcha. reason is because they were already off the guitars. And for whatever reason, he went, this black Stratocaster with a black pickguard would look better with this neck. And the black Stratocaster with a white pickguard would look better with this neck or something. That um, makes sense. And so for some reason he did that. Lord knows why. Um Actually, I think it's off of his... It, who gives a shit? Okay. Um, so anyway, I just found that. And first of all, I'd never really heard of a... Like, I feel like... I mean, I guess since he didn't use it very much, there's a reason we didn't hear about it. But it's just wild. You don't hear a lot about the double neck outside of Jimmy Page, basically. So I was very intrigued yeah. by that. Well, I mean, the only other multiple neck guitar I can think of that somebody famously played besides Jimmy Page is the guy from Cheap Trick who has um, a five-neck guitar, and the guitar is... Oh, he's got two, actually. He's got a five-neck guitar and a double-neck guitar, but the double-neck guitar is shaped like him, and the necks of the guitars are his legs. It's the fucking coolest guitar in the world. Jesus Christ. Um, Also, such fucking nerds. looking through this list, there's probably someone who's been yelling at their phone for months. But looking at this list, there is no pedal steel listed, only a lap steel guitar. And I'm starting to feel like an idiot because it might have been a lap steel and I just started calling it a pedal steel and now we keep talking about it being a pedal steel this whole time. But he might just be playing lap steel this whole time. So, that's it. We'll have to listen. I just don't know, because the only thing on this particular website, they only mention it being used on songs that are after what we've talked about now. And yeah. so I don't know for sure if it was the one he was using during the era we're talking about, the you know late mm-hmm. seven or early seventies. But uh, it's just very interesting. So that is interesting. I'm. Um... Oh, he had a pedal steel. He did. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then who knows? He might. He's maybe using both. Um. Also. Or wait. Oh, go ahead. So, well, now I'm looking it up even more. He's done both. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, cool. yeah. So I might not have been wrong, but they also might have been going back and forth more than I've been, or we've really been talking about on the show. Right. Um. Also, just a random, another random note from this that is very funny, and I don't know why someone would do this, but <laughs> at some point he bought... Um, a Martin guitar and acoustic, which he used for a bunch of Obscured by Clouds and stuff, which we just listened to. Mm-hmm. Um, he bought it because he went to a guitar shop in New York to look at acoustic guitars and buy a new acoustic guitar. On the street outside of the shop, some guy was like, hey, want to buy my guitar? And he played it a little bit and was like, yeah, I'll buy this guitar. And then just bought it and left. <laughs> like, did not even go inside the store. 
It's like they probably had this exact guitar inside the store. Like, why are you buying this one? It's so weird. Probably cheaper. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess. It's just really, really wild. It's um, really funny. Also, just a really funny, like, way... You know, it's weird because they are a pretty big band. They're obviously not as big as they'll get after Dark Side of the Moon, but they're a pretty big band. But it kind of feels like they're still shopping and buying instruments in a way like they're just playing like clubs. Like Mm -hmm. very kind of frugally. He's only getting a new guitar very occasionally or something like. Right. It's just it's really like he's reusing necks on guitars instead of. Yeah. Like, you know, by 75, he would just be contacting Fender to be like, can you custom build me anything? Probably like. Yeah. So it's just very strange. I mean, I think it's that's just a thing of the era. Where Probably it's like, as well, yeah. I know Eric Clapton, and maybe uh, this ties in with David Gilmore. Eric Clapton bought two, two or three Stratocasters in New York and had them shipped to uh, England, and then he took the best parts out of all of uh, them yeah. and then built like his famous – he has a guitar named Blackie and a right. guitar named Brownie, which, yeah. like, hindsight, maybe you shouldn't have named them those. Yeah. Um, but uh, I forget which one he built. And then I th- think he gave the, like, leftover guitar to David Gilmore or someone. Uh, okay. Yeah. I don't know. I forget who he gave it to. I, f- I feel like yeah. I want to say it was David Gilmore, but yeah. we haven't talked about it, so maybe I'm wrong. Um, yeah. It's interesting then, that that's just much more of a thing than I realized, especially with electric guitars, where people will just fully take them apart and swap parts around. Um, yeah, well, his was like the neck, and I don't know. And yeah, I mean, I think the electronics would have been the same. Maybe one played a little bit hotter or something, but yeah, um, I feel like it was wildly inconsistent at the time too, as far as mm-hmm. like electronics. So maybe right. that was it too, and the neck felt different. But George Harrison talked about it a little bit later in life where he was like yeah i didn't really realize at any point that i was in the beatles particularly like early beatles stuff i hated our tone i thought it sounded like garbage and you know we could have asked fender like can you make us nice stuff yeah we just never thought about it we just played what they gave us um and he was like we could have had a square guitar like bo did um but he did like they just never thought to do that so that in early days like when they were playing German stuff like Gresh's and right. using Vox amps, they were like, he hated that tone. And then like yeah. finally started to like his tone when he got like Fender stuff. And, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Fun. So I think just at the time, <clears throat> nobody thought about it. They weren't like gearheads where they were like, right. I don't know, searching out for the best stuff. They just had what they had. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, I thought I'd yeah, share that with you. Um, That's interesting. And then... Another thing, and this is just a, a random thought that occurred to me. Um, mm-hmm. Sorry. Uh, a random thought that occurred to me this week, which is, I think you and I have talked about this. I, I'm, I, we have to have talked about it on the show. <laughs> but um, that Led Zeppelin are member for member the most talented band of all time. Oh, Rock I think so. Yeah. I think so. I think it's easy. Um. um. They're all in their top three at their instrument, so. Yeah. Um, Pink Floyd, and this this was occurring to me because I was thinking about something I said a while ago, which is that it's interesting there's so many Pink Floyd cover bands because wouldn't that be really hard? It's like having a Led Zeppelin cover band or something we're like. And yeah. then I was thinking about it more after I read a quote doing research for this episode from David Gilmore where he talks about, he's like, I'm not a very good guitarist. Like, I can't play very fast. I can't do, like, a bunch of really fancy stuff. He's like, I think I really just get by a lot, kind of like 
to edge honestly from you two um who said this kind of stuff before like i kind of just get by a lot with tone and like emotion and kind of you know just like i do what i can do but i'm not nearly as good as like a lot of other guys that i know kind of thing and then i was thinking about it more i was thinking yeah they like actually if you really listen to stuff it's all really good but almost none of it feels like unattainably good or like like a song like uh, Blackbird or something where it's like still technically no one's figured out how that's played or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then I was thinking about, do we think Pink Floyd might be the least talented best rock band of all time? (laughs) Like the anti-Led Zeppelin where I'm like, like none of their members are talent. And let's say talent wise, not Cause like David Gilmore can be like one of my favorite guitarists of all time. Yeah. But talent wise, it is like, okay, yeah. If, if what he's saying is true, I haven't heard all of what he's done. If you're going by technical precision. Right. But if everything, like if what he's saying is true, then it's like, yeah, okay. He's not maybe even in like the top 50, just pure like technical talent wise. Then, and then I don't know that any of the other band members are, I mean, we've talked about Nick definitely isn't a particularly great drummer. No. I mean, Rick's really good, but I could also see you know again it's like if what we're hearing on not record, unattainably good you're right, right. and then he, roger i think as well. the answer to that is you too because yeah. I, I mean i don't like you too but i know a lot of people do like them the edge is not good at playing guitar he like he's not that great no he's he, he's more he of an really relies guy. a lot on the effects i think way more yeah. so than Pink which Floyd, drives yeah. me crazy that he's in that documentary with jack white and jimmy page who are both incredible guitarists and I then they're like and that, also go ahead I won't interrupt you. And then also, the edge is here. You don't think Jack White's a good guitarist? No, I don't think it's bad to have the edge in there. I think it's, I don't think he fits with them. I just don't like him. But I think it's, that's what I'm saying. But I think it's a very interesting kind of counterpoint to like these two guys who are so raw and natural and like give them a guitar, any guitar, any time, and they'll make like incredible stuff. And then this guy who's like in his room with 5,000 pedals being like okay so then i loop these six together and then i do like i just think it's a really I mean, interesting way to be like there's more than one way to be a great he, he's guitarist. good at what he does for sure yeah. i just feel like there wasn't a lot of discourse between no the i three agree of them yes. because he was not in their like realm in that all. way i agree anyway um but so he's not very talented bono like does not have a good voice he really doesn't I don't think he has a great voice i think he has a good voice he doesn't even have a good voice right. um and then the other two, nobody cares about them, so I imagine they're not very good. No, their drummer's bad. Their drummer is awful. I was going to say their drummer's actually probably the best player in their band because there's a Which story of their drummer. Much. There's a couple stories of their drummer in studio when they've worked with, like, they usually work with the same producer for, like, a, f- a few albums, and then they'll switch. Mm-hmm. I think two times when they were working with a new producer, they had to, like, work with him to get him to play drums differently because he would naturally basically play so well that it did not sound like an actual drummer. It kind of just sounded like a drum machine or something. Cause he was just so perfectly on time with everything where they're like, you need to like loosen up a little bit, man. To me, it sounds like the opposite of Ringo who is like technically like kind of what you're saying about David Gilmore, honestly, yeah. where he like is not maybe the best drummer of all time. Like he can't do a bunch of like, but he knows how to do what stuff, he can do really but well, but he can fit in the song really yeah. well. So, I mean, he can fit in the song. I would say the best. I feel like he is the best at doing that. Um, 
And I think a lot of other drummers agree. They're like, nobody can do the Ringo thing. But within that, well, I don't think, think any of them are. What's that? You think you too? I think it's you too. And then maybe Pink Floyd a close second. However, is Pink Floyd more iconic iconic than you two? Probably. Yeah. See, I think. Two things. I I don't necessarily disagree with you about you two, but I think it's a little less of a, an apt comparison because, like, I just think I guess the Pink Floyd Led Zeppelin thing works better because they're like the two titans of seventies rock. Yeah. And especially like seventies like big album, you know, macho dude rock kind of thing. Yeah. Where it's like I think basically. Yeah, and they're both coming at it from, like, opposite corners of, like, we're just going to attack this with pure talent and, like, little to no songwriting chops to some degree. And then the other way where it's, like, we're going to only attack this with, like, lyrics and songwriting and trying to, like, make everything meld together perfectly instead of, like, just relying on our innate talent to force something great into the world. Yeah, but then you look at who's got better ballads and... And it's Led like Zeppelin. tied. I was gonna say it's no. probably. I think it's really close because Led Zeppelin's ballads are. We like talked about it on Obscured by stuff. Clouds. I think Pink yeah. Floyd's best. They're stuff great are their at ballads. It. They're so. not bad at it, but Led Zeppelin's ballads are just like. I don't think I, I think agree because I think Pink Floyd have a significant edge in lyrics. I think Roger, Roger Waters is a way better lyricist than anything. Led um, Zeppelin. You just don't like Lord of the Rings, really so you don't right. like. <laughs> yeah, that might be it. <laughs> or going to California. I only like leaving California. I grew up in Anaheim, was there for a long time, then I left for the fog. I left for cold beach. So, yeah. You know. Cold, rainy beach. Cold, rainy beach. Uh, well, anyway, so write in with your thoughts. Beachboysboys.com. Do you think Pink <laughs> Floyd are the least talented, best rock band of all time? You know what I mean. That sounds weird, but okay. The worst, best band of all time. No. no, that's not even right. Yeah, I the don't worst, think that's right. Because there's bands that least are like talented bad, best band. But I think yeah, good, yeah. But I don't think they're bad. I think it's just that. I don't yeah, think I think bad either. it's like. Well, some of their albums are bad. Let's be yeah. real. But if you're getting yeah, if you're digging into like individual talent, I feel like it could be argued none of them are that high, highly rated. Whereas with yeah. Pink Floyd, I think it's or Led Zeppelin, it's pretty inarguable. Okay. All right. Well, that was fun. <laughs> little thought exercise for us with Pink Floyd. Um, well, do we want to do a couple seg? We have a couple of segments here. Sure. Let's get them. Let's go ahead and start with uh, a segment I think we've only done one time, so we will we will do it once more uh, for the last time. Uh, PJ, what are you drinking? Well, Pete... I'm drinking something that I like to call the Earth's finest water. Whoa, ooh, let me guess. Is it water? It's water. I bet it's water. Not Your just water. Your face is telling me it's water. Fiji water. Whoa. On a remote island of over sixteen hundred over 1,600 miles from the nearest continent, tropical rain slowly filters through volcanic rock into a sustainable ancient artesian aquifer. Oh, my God. Drop by... Drop by drop, Fiji water acquires the natural miner- minerals and electrolytes that give its signature smooth taste perfected by nature. There's nothing on earth quite like it. Wow. That's incredible. And let's hear that. What's your review of the Fiji water? Mm. 
refreshing. Oh, you know what, PJ? I can... Okay, I see behind you. I see the vodka bottle and funnel behind you. You just filled that with Shh, vodka. Don't tell him. You did a Robin Williams, friend. Damn. Yeah, it's Crystal Skull Vodka. That's crazy. Which is, like, made the same way as this, basically, right, but sure. instead it's, yeah, like... Yeah. A remote ancient lava rock island where the aliens landed years and years ago. Yeah. Um, oh, this song changed. <laughs> I was really to about Jethro to say, PJ, did you just start playing piano on your end? What's going on, man? <laughs> um, all right, well. What are you drinking? Let's see. I am drinking a a beer. A, a, what do you call them? Brewski. Thank you. I can remember oh, the yeah, word. My, Shelby just yelled from the other room. It's a brewski. Okay. Um, I forget what I call them now. I heard that the other day. It's so good. And it's very fun. Yeah, it's it's a Oktoberfest beer, just one day after the season. Uh, and it's don't give away when we're yeah, recording this. Paint. It's it's brewed locally by Rosenstadt Brewing. Uh, it is a rich amber lager with layered malt flavors of bread, almonds, and dried fruit paired with spicy floral hopping. It apparently has something called carafoam in the ingredients. Don't know what that means. Hmm. Yeah. And now, Pete, here's the question I have for you. Do they, by chance, serve that at your favorite establishment where you pick up your mail? Prost, <laughs> located at 4237 North Mississippi Avenue in Portland, Oregon. You know what? They do not, because Prost only serves beer made in Europe. Oh, I just thought it was German beer in general. I didn't know it had to be, like, actually German. Yep, only imported from Germany wow. or... I mean, I think I've only ever had... So they're not from stimulating there, the local economy? No, not at all. No, they only they only hire people from Germany who live in Germany, so they pay them. <laughs> and some Argentinians that, <laughs> yeah. uh, for some reason, have German accents. That's right, that's interesting. I forgot about that. Um, boy, Roger would love that place. We should show him. Um... <laughs> All right, well, that's been what are you drinking? What's scintillating? <laughs> song is very funny. I forget, did Nikki play the I like to think the whole band got in on the bongos. Okay, uh now we have some listener mail. It's awfully considerate of you to think of me here, and I'm most obliged to you. Ah, poor Sid. Has he died yet? No, it'll be a while. Okay. Um, yeah. So twenty years or so. We have two pieces of listener mail. Um, I'm just double checking. Yes, we have two pieces of listener mail. They are both from the month of September, uh, oh. of which we are long past. So apologies. Um, also, <laughs> I still have starred to reply to a email sent on June 30th. So. <laughs> At this point, I'm gonna go ahead and say, if you're listening, Nathan, not gonna happen. You got your answer on Probably the air, not, not off the air. Yeah. All right. So, this is from Austin, uh, who has written in before. Thank you, Austin. Austin for contacting from Austin us again. Yep, Austin from Austin, the Austin neighborhood of Los Angeles. Uh, that actually, that's actually the original Keep Austin Weird. It's the, mm -hmm. it's known as the funkiest neighborhood in all of the Southland area. Okay. Um, howdies, PJ and Pete. Multiple howdies, that's nice. It's me, Austin. Yes, we know, Gmail tells us. Uh, just sitting yeah. here listening to animals. Uh, hmm. Do you think he means the band, the animals, or the 
Pink Floyd album, Animals. Yeah, that's a he good question. Would... Eric Burden. Oh, that's but Eric Burden sings lead on the whole of Animals, I think, by Pink Floyd. I forgot that. We'll just After assume War, Eric Burden he is in here. At, yeah, we'll just assume Eric Burden is a part of it somehow. Okay. Yeah. Either way, he's listening to Eric Burden and wondering what. Well, but did. The animals exist after Eric Burden left, or did they end when he left? Now this is a good question. This we gotta look up. Boy, I don't know. I don't know enough about the animals to know that. I gotta think they did, unless he owned all of their songs, in which case they would have broken up. But, but that kind of feels like a Doors thing after Jim Morrison dies, and then they still release albums. Or I'm like, I could see the animals trying to. Just because they know some sucker is going to keep buying the albums without realizing Eric Burden's gone. Yeah. Back when, you know, the internet didn't exist and everyone didn't know everything all the time. Yeah, I mean, you and I did before the internet. Um, True, I was born an all-knowing baby. I was the baby at the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey. I I played the baby in A Baby's Day Out. Oh, nice. Um, When you were, Did you know that in 1967... Yeah. They made this you was, shave yeah. completely, get in a diaper. The, the remake. Crawl yeah. around the stage the whole time. Yeah. I assume there's a um, stage in, play version of the Y. Yeah, it's a, it's a one-man <laughs> play that I wrote myself. One-man show. Yeah, um, you do all the parts. Yeah. That's fantastic. Boy, yeah. I'm Which, so it's I a lot that. of me crawling off stage, running back, putting right. on a suit real quick, and being like, get back here, baby. <laughs> yeah, the trap doors help a lot with, yeah. with making that work. Yeah. I wish I had a twin. It would make it way easier. Um, Do you You know that 1967? Can you do that now? Hello, listeners. It's your host, PJ. For the next two to four minutes, there will be spoilers about the 2006 hit Christopher Nolan film, The Prestige. So if you've not yet seen it, I know it's not been out that long, then please skip forward. Thank you. Well, I hear this guy Nikola Tesla has a device. If you just go to Colorado Springs and give him a visit, he'll he'll give you something where you can then clone yourself and then kill your clone. I was just there. Oh, god damn it. And you forgot, you forgot to ask him. Is I'm sorry, is that what that movie is about? <laughs> yeah, that's what that movie is. I've never seen the it. The Prestige, yeah. Nikola You've Tesla never seen makes it. a you cloning see- machine. Oh, now I feel bad telling you what he- it is. Cause that's okay. I knew that Nikola Tesla was a part of it's it. It's a really good I didn't movie. realize that he made a cloning machine. I knew that there, it yes. was his twin or something. Yeah, I knew that so much. But I didn't realize it was a, a okay. clone that he has to kill. So it's, <laughs> it's Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale, right? So Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale are two magicians. They both... Is, that, is it them in The Prestige or is it the other fella? No, Ed Norton. Because there's those two movies that Edward, came out at the yeah, same time. Yeah, Edward Norton is in something else. It's a different movie. Okay. That's Edward Norton's is about like using magic to bring back ghosts, kind of. The Prestige the is about I think Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale. They're like these two dueling magicians in London or something, and mm-hmm. they're both trying to perfect this like trick where they appear, they disappear, and then appear on the other side of the theater. And so Christian Bale figures it out, like does it. And then Hugh Jackman is like, I've got to do this at all costs and gets all desperate, goes to visit Nikola Tesla, gets 
he makes him a device that clones him. And so then he like, and then the clone drops through a trap door in the stage and is drowned is like the reveal at the end is that he's killing his clone every time to pull this trick off. Um, although why didn't he just have the one clone the whole time? Why do you have to kill him every time? It's a decent question. So maybe because the clone would not keep narc keep on up him with the, Yeah, exactly. So, and then the reveal at the end is that Christian Bale has a twin brother who an identical twin, yeah. which is how he's been pulling off the trick. So Hugh Jackman went to all these lengths, like for no reason or not for no reason, but like he's doing this awful, horrible stuff. And Christian Bale's just like, being a magician with his twin, twin brother <laughs> yeah so okay but then I, it's hilarious that we were too. yeah because funny that yeah. we were referencing the same movie that i had not seen <laughs> that, that i knew really the funny. twin part about david bowie plays nikola tesla yeah, right yeah yeah what a wild movie david bowie people liked it yeah uh i yeah it's good it's a fun movie it's kind of ridiculous like all um oh man who does that christopher nolan i think it's pretty yeah. ridiculous but it's fun um, it looks like the animals, to answer your question from earlier, the animals were the animals from 1962 to 1966, and then Eric Burden and animals yeah. from 1966 to 1968, and then really, after the, what's that? I said that short of a time. Yeah. And then after that, it looks like there was a legal dispute about the name, mm. and so some of the original members of the animals went on without Eric Burden. Um, and Still did not do well. No. Yeah, I think okay. they just toured, much like the Beach Boys. It's what it or seems the, like. Or the Supremes. Okay. Or the yeah. That's a real Supreme situation, actually. All right. So, <laughs> Get, getting back to listener mail. Just sitting here listening to animals <laughs> and wondering why it's been a couple months since the last episode of the Pod. Uh, missing your funny conversations about the Floyd. Hopefully, you guys are all good. Just wanted to say, animals really rocks. Have a great rest of the year. Austin from Austin, Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, so first of all, I'm slightly insulted by the ending, which is have a great rest of the year, which somehow I think insinuates that Austin's Implies assuming that we're not gonna... I'm both not going to read this and we're not going to record for several more months. <laughs> which, it's going to be a while. Yeah. <laughs> which I also appreciate, though. It's pretty low pressure. It's good. You know, I like that he's not like, see you next week, you know. Right, he doesn't have high expectations no, for us. No, which is good. That should be the case, I think. But um, thank you. And also, uh, you know, this is like when you're watching like a TV show with your partner or something, and then you leave on a trip or something, and then they watch ahead, and you get mm-hmm. back, and they're like, no, it's fine. I'll rewatch them, but it kind of ruins it because you wanted to watch it yeah. together. Austin's listening ahead, and he's a By full a lot. three albums ahead. Yeah. He was a full Unless, four albums ahead when this, because Obscured by Clouds, we did after this, so. Unless he's talking about Eric Burden and Animals. So now Austin, when he's listening, is saying, is like, I mean, I've heard it, but it's fine. Like, you guys it's can fine. catch up it's, to me now. Like, come on, Austin. Yeah, which does actually add on that undue pressure we talked about right, earlier. Right, Now I don't know if we'll even off. finish the show at all. We might have to just move on to a different artist. Yeah. Well, well, next on the um, listener mail is also from Austin. Uh, <laughs> the subject line is bravo on the amazing bit, but everything is in capitals except the T at the end of bit. So it looks like bravo on the amazing BLT. 
because I looked at it originally and went, huh, what could this be referencing? <laughs> um, oh. And true to our uh, last episode's wishes, Austin sent uh, an email with many, many applause emojis and said, glad you guys are back. Hope you guys have a great rest of the season. I assume he means the Halloween spooky season. Yeah. Um, from Which we did. Austin from Austin, Los Angeles. And then also attached a stock photo of an emoji clapping, <laughs> which is really funny. Um, also, funny. incredibly, so it's all the clapping emoji and then that one line, <coughs> Gmail wants to know if I want to translate this message from Japanese to English. <laughs> I would I would like them to, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, well, let me, let me translate message. Um, It just adds some spaces in between the emojis. <laughs> That's the only difference. Somehow that seems racist to me. I don't know. It's weird. But, uh, but, uh, so yeah, that's our listener mail. Thanks for writing in, Austin. If anyone else wants to email us, it's beachboysboys at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts on such topics as Pink Floyd. Fellas. Sure, fellas. Um, that girl with the big boobs from yeah, the Rolling Stones. Yeah, whoever PJ reference. Yeah, let us know what you guys thought of Hackney Diamonds because that Rolling Stone review, you know, we made jokes about it being paid, but or like being a friend of a friend, but it's it's possible some people think it's legitimately good. So I'd love to I hear from someone who maybe did thinks see that. It. It's it's time for PJ's TikTok corner. Oh, okay. um, ooh, Hackney Diamonds I did made it see... to TikTok. Boy, the Rolling Stones did something right. <laughs> I saw a woman who apparently is very popular on TikTok. Talking about how much she enjoyed the new Rolling Stones I think there's a lot of people album. who are popular on TikTok, so that must be hard to do. She's like a younger woman, too. What? Like younger than A younger are. person? Yeah. Popular. Wow. I, know. I wonder how they pulled that off. And also how they pulled that off while also being a person who liked the album Heck Diamonds <laughs> is crazy to me. Oh, I think having bad taste and being a TikTok star is <laughs> hand in glove, buddy. <laughs> uh, you might be right about that one. Okay, although I do love me some short shorts, so they did that right. That was a TikTok thing, to wear short shorts for guys. Oh. Yeah. Was it? Yeah, I think like two years ago. Oh, okay. Anyway, go ahead. What's up? Some woman no, that was it. Hackney Diamonds on TikTok. There, yeah, there was this younger woman who was talking about how much she enjoyed the new Rolling Stones album. That's weird, because um, it's a lot of a 70-year-old man screaming at a woman. About her age, probably. <laughs> and so somehow she, she yeah. enjoyed that. Was it? Oh, she enjoyed it. Was it Mick Jagger's wife? Let me look it up. Oh, damn. I was hoping it would be. Oh. It was Mick Jagger. Oh. I just thought he was a TikTok You know what? Influencer. Sometimes in the right light, from the right angle, he does yeah. kind of look like a 25-year-old woman. He had the, the dog filter on from Snapchat. Oh, I guess. So it, it was okay. hard to tell. That is hard to tell. He's really good at those dances, though. He can nail all of them. Yeah. So, yeah, because the Supreme... No, Tina Turner's band, I want to say, taught him how to dance. Who taught him? Someone. Tina Turner's band. Yeah, yeah that's okay. right. Because they opened for Tina Turner for a long time. Yeah. All right. Well, that has been Listener Mail. It's so considerate of you to think of me here. All right. So, PJ... I don't want to like rush us into it because I really I don't again just like Austin was putting a lot of pressure on us 
Well, he wasn't. Sorry. He wasn't putting a lot of yeah. pressure on us. And then at the end of it, he was. And I don't want to put more pressure on us than, you know, we than we want. So are we ready to talk about Dark Side of the Moon? Do we want to talk about... Is there anything else? Is there... Honestly, is there any fucking thing else we can talk about before we start talking about this album? Because... Wait. It, we should probably... I mean, we should probably take a break before we start we talking about We should take a break for sure. Yeah. We should also mention it is... Um, our ep- the, oh yeah, we should up, we should talk it, about this. It, yeah, this will be upon release mm-hmm. the hundredth episode of the Beach Boys Boys extended podcast universe that we've released, which is yeah, yeah, I know it's calm impressive. Down, really calm down. So, and you know what's wild is that it feels like a lot, and it is a lot. A hundred episodes mm-hmm. of an ep- of a podcast is a lot. A lot of TV shows don't get to 100 episodes, PJ. In That's fact, true. almost none. <laughs> but anyway, um, what's really wild is that if this was actually a weekly show, we would have been at episode 100 like in a couple of years. Two and a half years ago. Yeah. And, you know, instead, it's taken us one month shy of five years. <laughs> <laughs> That's how long our first episode came out, December 2018. And we are recording this November 2023. And you know what? There was a pandemic in the middle there. There was was a lot of life, but not three years worth. We both moved several times to different states. Still, though. um, Pretty incredible. So, anyway, we're just, we're letting everyone know because the way we number episodes, this will just show up as like Pink Floyd episode 10 or something. Uh, Mm. But we will do a whole 100 episode special next episode after we've officially right. recorded a hundred then we'll celebrate yeah you know what shit could go wrong on this episode that's true stuff could go down we could never get this episode out and then if we start celebrating before it comes out we're the fools we're the exactly. assholes i'd go on reddit yeah. am i the asshole and say am i the asshole for celebrating my podcast getting to a hundred episodes when we and technically every comment have only is definitive yes. yeah and it would be yeah. a million people just saying yes you're the asshole and then somebody would be reading it on youtube and then probably nathan would be on there like no guys you're fine it's fine and then austin would be like i've listened to animals so technically like if we want to say it's been like i'm on episode episodes. 105 yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, you know, it's it's good because people... And then Joe will be like, I remember when these albums came out or something, you know. <laughs> yeah, some old guy shit. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway. But just be looking for... I know I know you eagle-eyed viewers um, mm-hmm. viewing the podcast app mm-hmm. um, who are listening to our podcast have counted them up and tallying them. Yes. And you're like, why aren't they doing this? Yeah, everyone has 100? behind their headboard of their bed. You scoot it back a little bit. And everyone's carved into their wall or, or scratched on there with a pencil or something. Those little those little hash marks to count out how many Beach Boys Boys episodes there have been. And so, you know, what? it only took us like seven bands to get here, too. I know. Yeah. Not bad. Yeah. All right. Well, let's but, go ahead and take a break and come back and start talking about Dark Side of the Moon. We'll be right back.
welcome back to the Pink Floyd Fellas. We're talking about Dark Side of the Moon, one of their lesser known albums, PJ, but one that I think, just yeah. like Obscured by Clouds, I think it's worth touching on. Um, although we'll keep it short. We won't yeah. go on for very long about this one. So. Yeah. More like Dark Side of their sales. Right? <laughs> oh boy. Dude. Don't even get me started. Have you looked at the Pink Floyd sales figures, though? It's actually pretty interesting stuff. It's if you just like email um, EMI, you can get them, and it's yeah. it's fun to go through. It's good. They have them. It's like yeah. So they send it as like an attachment, or like, you know, you can open it in Excel, and then it's kind of fun to yeah. like mess around in there, create some tables, yeah. and like, you know, just get, just just play with the data. You know, it's good stuff. I love playing with data. Who doesn't love playing with data? All right, assholes. That's it. So some of this will be a little bit repeated from when we talked about Obscured by Clouds, uh, because we already talked like some about them starting to work on it last week. So right. just so people know, I know that I'm repeating myself. Okay. Also, not last Good. week. It was a month and a half ago. <laughs> last episode. Thank you. <laughs> uh, not even last episode. That was Hackney Diamonds. Oh God, damn it! Oh, it's so hard doing a podcast. I forgot how hard this is. I know. You have an ongoing other podcast about the Rolling Stones. <laughs> All right, so as we know, the boys started working on this album before Obscured by Clouds was released, and it started out as a live concept, uh, sort of like the song Echoes off of Metal, if you remember that album uh, and song. I do recall. Uh, so a, a large part, I'm going to say about 90% of what we talk about today is from my book, Pink Floyd, All the Songs, the Story Behind Every Track, by Jean-Michael... Goudon and Um So anyway, that's my reference for the episode. And I will say if stuff comes from somewhere else. Okay. So, the group met in November 1971, a fateful day, uh, at Nick Mason's house. Um, and they, That's the one thing he's good for, because yeah. he's got a nice house to meet <laughs> at. Gonna, I feel like that's always like... The bandmate no one really cares about. They're like, let's uh, yeah. let's meet at your house, or let's have you drive like Ian Stewart yeah. from Stones. Yeah, exactly. Um, hey, but how about you have a you have a car, right? So, anyway, um, so they met in November '71 to talk about their next album, what it could be, and Roger has an idea. Which at this point, by the way, Ooh. this is a good thing for Pink Floyd. Later, it won't be a good thing, but at this point, <laughs> Roger's ideas. They're, des- they're desperate for ideas, and also his ideas are still good. So anyway, he came up with an idea for a concept album written about these themes of deadlines, travel, the stress of flying, the lure the of money, of a fear of dying, and mental instability spilling into madness. Um, to which, you know, careful listeners to our show will know that um, in 1966, the Rolling Stones released an album called Aftermath. That was a concept mm-hmm. album that covered every single one of those themes <laughs> pretty <laughs> and and pretty well. So, mm-hmm. which I don't think, you know, I don't want to toot my own horn here, but I'm like, I wonder who else in the world has ever realized that Aftermath and Dark Side of the Moon are really weirdly similar, or at least came from the exact same place. Like, both of these bands were in the exact same mindset of like, this is yeah. what we need to be talking about. Anyway, all right. That's funny. So I know, weird, right? All right. So Roger, though, wanted this to be more direct than their previous music. Before, they would just sing things like that fat old son. And now he wants to sing yeah. 
more directly about that fat old son. Money. So uh, clearly I understand how music is made. Um, so, and he imagined this, uh, this album in three acts centered around the loss of childhood and innocence, the hold on society or the hold of society during your life, uh, and the struggle against death and nothingness. So anyway, he's obviously feeling in his feelings as they would say on TikTok. Oh, um, mm. I know you said it and I thought Peter's so young and hip. <laughs> he's really internet savvy. And then you hit a dab. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. Not the drugs. Oh, I was going to say only the drugs. Uh, so Roger was all inspired. He was in a tizzy. Uh, he wrote almost all of the lyrics before they started recording um, and then would really just kind of add or change bits and pieces here and there depending on how the songs fully took form. But for the most part, the lyrics apparently were almost entirely written before they before they had full songs. <clears throat> um Nick Mason later did an interview saying that this was a better way of working than they had previously because they usually put together albums in a, quote, air of desperation rather than inspiration, <laughs> which is pretty so yeah, true. succinctly describes how they've been working since Sid Barrett. Um, so not um, totally, you know, like inspired or at least in a new way. Uh, so Roger remembers that they got together in December 71 to do some sessions and in order to start fleshing these songs out they would play a single chord for about an hour to see how it sounded (laughs) I would quit the band or like to work on one section for just hours and hours that would be like a five minute chunk you know like yeah Mm -hmm. so good job guys you're really you're moving forward so um, around this time Roger also came up with the idea. It's just, it's mostly just kind of interesting how much of this was kind of set in stone before they even started recording. And we'll get to yeah. it uh, later. But yeah, anyway, or we'll, we'll hear more about this. But also around this time in late 71, Roger came up with the idea of, you know, he wanted to do more direct, shorter songs, not these big, long epics. But in order to Smart kind man. of still do a bit of experimental thing on disc he wanted to have all the songs run into each other so then they had like kind of only these two big songs on the album sort of like you know because they'd experiment they'd been i think maybe the first band i actually forget this trivia now i think they were the first band to do a full side of an lp as a single song for adam hartmother but i might be wrong about that um anyway so he had this idea to to connect them all together. Maybe the first rock band. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess a piece of classical music or some shit, but... Um, yeah, probably the first rock band. All right. So Davey remembers... Um, oh, sorry, just the way I wrote my note made no sense. Davey remembered that idea really speaking to the band... And, like, based on his ideas on the themes, the lyrics he was coming up with, and this idea of still kind of musically experimenting, but also writing these more direct songs, like, basically all of four of them were like, fuck yeah, we're on board, this sounds great. Um, I'm gonna guess that, at least partially, it was because, oh my god, someone has an idea we can just roll with, instead of having to sit in the studio for months? We're in! (laughs) Yeah. So. That sounds way better. Yeah. So they started readying these songs, getting their tour together because they were going to work it out on their uh, 1972 tour. 
Um, so on this tour, by the way, this is going to start. We'll get into this more throughout the 70s, but this is... We've talked about it a little before. They, they've kind of always been savvy in terms of doing interesting lighting or kind of interesting sound effects playing live. So mm. they're still... And they'll become, I guess what I'm trying to say is they'll become more known for that later, but since their earliest kind of days, they've been into that. So for this tour, they had a, uh, like, um, super fancy lighting equipment. They had 360 degree quadraphonic sound. Um, Whoa. They had all their sound effects ready to go. Like the heartbeat and the tape loop from money were like already, um, part of the plan at this point. So (laughs) it'd be pretty high tech and also like surprisingly high tech for a tour where they're mostly working out demos (laughs) yeah um so and then this is the tour where they take their two breaks to go work on obscured by clouds at honky chateau by the way right so by january 72 they have six a little bit wild yeah yeah. that like talking speaking of the rolling stones like two years before this the Rolling Stones live records, like when they yeah. would record stuff live, they literally just like hucked a microphone over the fucking balcony yes. and they're like, good enough. Yeah. And then these guys are like, we need quadraphonic sound and yeah. fucking tape, you know, like yeah. it's. You know, I think it's kind of weird. I think it was just, you know, kind of like how you were talking about with instruments and everything where like, you know, the Beatles got all the way to 1970 without really realizing like, oh, we can be getting fancy shit. Whereas in yeah. 1970... I don't actually remember this specifically from the Rolling Stones, but I would guess the Rolling Stones were the type of band where like Keith's calling up Gibson or some shit, you know, and just being like, Hey, can you get me this stuff? Or there were bands, you know, or artists who were like, yes, I'm getting custom instruments made or whatever. It just feels a lot more separated where like Pink Floyd are going on this ultra high tech tour, but then it's not like the whole industry is like, Oh yeah, this is what we're doing. Like the Rolling Stones tour manager is still like, uh, we don't really know how to record live guys. We're going to have to yeah. figure this one out because right. it's just not like there isn't, it doesn't, it, it's a lot more kind of just thrown together. There's a lot less of a standard. Whereas like if, you know, the Rolling Stones were putting together a tour now, they might have their old tour manager, but they also would probably be like, what do we need to know? That's like the most high tech thing we can be doing or something. And like, what new equipment yeah. do we need? And like, anyway, right. So, so they have six songs, which I think we, we talked about a little bit in Obscured by Clouds. But as of now, they have six songs that are almost fully formed. Speak to Me, On the Run, which is originally called The Travel Sequence. Uh, Time, Breathe, Great Gig in the Sky, which is originally called The Mortality Sequence. And Money. And so while they toured, they wrote Us and Them, Any Color You Like, Brain Damage, and Eclipse. So by the time their tour ended, they had all uh, ten songs for the album. Pretty impressive. It is kind of impressive. So, let's see. So, the songs on tour, they toured, presenting their tour as The Dark Side of the Moon, A Piece for Assorted Lunatics. Uh, For a while while they were on... I don't like that. Yeah. For a while while they were on tour, they changed it to Eclipse, A Piece for Assorted Lunatics, because apparently a band called Medicine Head released an album in 1972 called Dark Side of the Moon. We talked about this. But it flopped so bad that while they were still on tour, they were like, ah, fuck it. Let's just go back to Dark Side of the Moon. (laughs) That rules. Um, Yeah. Anyway. It's also interesting. This is maybe a little bit of a thing still, but it was a thing more in the 60s and 70s for like 
if a band came and played in your town, someone from the newspaper would go and review the concert. Yeah. And so there's a lot of concert reviews from this time. Um, I think, you know, probably just pre-phone era where it's like, if you couldn't go to the show, there's no way for you to know what happened except if someone right. maybe wrote about it. So anyway, so they got a lot of reviews on this tour uh, and got rave reviews during the tour. Like already people were having their minds blown by these songs and by their stage presentation and stuff and all that sort of stuff. So, um, so during 1970, oh, here's just a fun aside that I found. Um, apparently during 1972, at some point, the band was invited to Marseille, France, uh, because a guy there who ran a ballet company really liked their music and wanted them to play music, uh, for one of his ballets. So there was a Pink Floyd ballet that was performed. Wow. I bet that was not fun. There's a, uh, no, I bet. Yeah, I bet it's, I bet it was possibly the most boring thing on earth. Let me find... It's gonna be a lot of page sound effects, but let me find this photo to show you. It's pretty, it's pretty funny. It's just like the four of them on this weird riser behind people doing ballet, and it looks ridiculous. Boy, we really could be making a sound effects record here. This is amazing. Oh, you know what? Right here, playing his lap steel. There's yeah, a giant a photo in my book of the lap steel guitar, so that's fun. Oh yeah, here we go. No, that wait, that's not a lap steel. That's a pedal steel. It says lap steel in the. Let me see. He has again. it on stand. You're right about that. But I think it's just a lap steel. I don't think it's, it's just a lap steel on anyway. legs. Okay. So <laughs> there's the boys on a little. Uh, sorry, wow. there's the boys on that, a little riser that, back there. Truly looks miserable <laughs> for just for everyone. Although I guess maybe people in the ballet got to be like to their brothers who they're already you know yeah. cousins or whatever who they're are like what are you fucking lame in ballet and they're like yeah we're doing yeah. one with Pink Floyd ever heard of them so anyway yeah they really stuck it to them <laughs> so they started recording uh, in May seventy two they were taking breaks during the tour. Uh, to start recording. So it took them nine months uh, to finish recording, but in that nine months, they actually didn't record for that long. It was only about 60 days uh, in total. So, which really isn't a lot for how complicated this music was. So I think really speaks to them uh, just having Mm -hmm. fleshed it all out on tour and knowing the music so well. And that's that was brought up several times in my book with like interviews with the band members of like, oh yeah, once we were in the tour, we knew exactly what we were doing. It was just about getting like the technical stuff right. But in terms of the songs, they were pretty much totally. done. So uh, let's see. Yeah, according to Davey and Alan Parsons, the engineer who we'll talk a little bit more about later on, um, they both said that the recording experience, kind of like Obscured by Clouds, was really positive uh, with all the members contributing you know obviously roger was basically writing the music and or writing all of the lyrics and a lot of the music not all of it but anyway um but they at this point they're self-produced by the way so apparently which sounds really cute they would all take turns producing each other as they recorded their parts so they'd all Mm -hmm. go jump back into the booth and anyway um so 
and even apparently even Roger later admitted that yeah you know we were pretty like even though it was kind of my album I wasn't a huge asshole yet so anyway um apparently while they were recording aside from touring there were two unmissable events soccer matches and new episodes of Monty Python Wow, that's the most British shit I've ever so heard they in my would, yeah, life. So they would disappear from the studio for these things. And so Alan Parsons was left alone to mix a lot. And he, this apparently strong, this, he liked this. And then it also made a big difference in the finishing of the album because he would mm-hmm. fiddle around a lot with none of the band there. So he just got to do whatever he wanted, like mixing and editing wise. And then they would yeah. come back and usually be like, oh, yeah, sounds great. So. Like he got a lot more freedom than he usually he usually would have. Yeah, well that's good. Good thing he didn't love comedy or football. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think he probably did. But let's see. I'll go ahead and bring this up now. He was an hourly wage worker at this point, so I think he was <laughs> locked into being there when he was there. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Where did that statistic or where did that go? Oh, here we go. Yeah, so he was on a weekly salary from EMI of 35 pounds a week at this point. So hmm. I'm going to go ahead and guess he was not as con- in control of his own schedule like the, like the Floyd. 35 pounds a week? Yeah, he got, that's all, he got absolutely none of the proceeds wow. from the, you know, gajillion copies of Dark Side of the Moon that sold. He just got his salary. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's pull out the old inflation Because he was not, this was here. kind of the album that, like, made him able to then be a super producer kind of guy like because he had done big stuff before but this was the one where that broke him out and now i think from here on out he probably got to choose his projects and obviously get paid more and all that right i mean probably worth it in the long run but yeah but still kind of rough because this is still this is will always be the biggest thing he worked on so yeah i mean maybe i technically worked on let it be but this probably sold more than let it right um mm. that's a legitimate okay i'll look that up while you look up the 35 pounds a week yeah all right holy fuck inflation is crazy yeah in british pounds 35 pounds in 1973 costs in um or is the same amount now as three hundred and sixty three dollars and sixty five cents jesus so 10 times more but that is nothing still not good that's yeah i'm like yeah if you're getting paid bi-weekly after taxes that's like what 650 maybe for a paycheck that is fucking nothing that is wild okay um Dark Side of the Moon sold has sold over 45 million copies. This is just Google, so who knows? These aren't exactly accurate, but let it be <laughs> 6 million copies. Hmm. Um, I just checked, though, because I'm like, that seems way too low. Abbey Road was at 28 million, so which seems more about right for a you know a, a Beatles album. But I know Let It Be is not a super popular one, but it's always kind of weird to me because it was their last one, so My you kind of would think it would have been the most because people would have been like oh fuck this is it but maybe back then people didn't i don't know anyway i don't know all right it's my my favorite album by the beatles i think that's a great one 
so even though they were pretty laid back, all the even though the fellows were pretty laid back during recording, um, they were apparently still kind of perfectionists. So and you know taking their time, so they would spend hours like Davy would just spend all day trying different pedals and amps and everything to find the exact tone for an exact like one guitar line, and then once he got that, would do it in like one or two takes. Um, wow. Yeah. That's dedication. Yeah, stuff like the money tape loop famously took like an entire day to do. Um, I guess redo. Like, I, yeah, I'm a little unclear on that because apparently they had a tape loop of some kind for the tour, but they re-recorded it, I guess, in the studio. And uh, yeah, that took a while. Huh. Um, one very interesting, strange note: I have never heard of this being done before at all. Davy apparently would record his guitar parts by playing through his amp that was mic'd up, which is already kind of weird, but I guess, I don't know. That's that, not that weird. Okay, okay. That's pretty... I was going to say, that at least would be normal for the time, but anyway. Would play through his amp that was mic'd up, then he'd run the guitar cable all the way around into the control room and stand next to Alan Parsons while he played the part to record it, which I don't know why, except the only thing I can think is that it's because he wanted to hear how it was sounding like on yes, the master tape. That's what I'm thinking. So yeah. that, like that, I guess just goes to how much of a perfectionist they were being in terms of tone and like getting the perfect sound yeah. is they were like, we, I think it I mean, sounds good, but let me hear it on the master tape. Cause that's the only way I'll know for sure that this is what I want it to sound like. To me, that makes sense. Like having recorded from a digital perspective because i like will also record through an amp yeah but then i'll have my headphones on to see how it sounds through like right. you know all of the digital stuff too yeah i guess back so, then they didn't i mean that was that basically the way to do it back then well but. and they also didn't i mean they were recorded in abbey road but they did not have the nicest equipment even for 1972 fucking abbey road had garbage equipment yeah so and we'll get we'll get to that later uh, there's they had to borrow a wild story. George Harrison's eight track. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, in 1972, they still don't have an eight track recorder for Pink Floyd to use. We'll get to that. That's wild. So it was also apparently a pretty quiet kind of business like atmosphere in the studio. Uh, one of the backup singers that came in, one of the many, um, had said that like they were expecting like, oh, we're going in with this rock band. Like it's going to be crazy. People are going to be like smoking weed or like you know it's just going to be like a party or whatever. It was apparently just really quiet, professional. They were there from like eight to five, weren't really talking a lot except like, okay, uh, well, now we're gonna do this part and et cetera, et cetera. So um, that sounds right to me. Which is for interesting. These you know, they say that to some degree, I could imagine Pink Floyd seem like guys where that's probably kind of how they work. Like Rick and Davey especially seem like kind of quiet, insular guys, and like Roger yeah. to some degree, if he's not. He seems like he'd vacillate wildly between being really quiet and then being super obnoxious. But anyway, so like I could see them kind of always maybe recording that way, even, you know, in their earlier kind of we're having fun days. But I also wonder if it's maybe a little bit, even though they're all fully in on this album, but if they're kind of starting to pull apart a tiny bit. I don't know. That's me just making right. that up. But it wouldn't surprise yeah. me if it's a little bit of like, oh, yeah, we're just here to record this music, but we're not like super friendly or whatever we're not hanging out together all day and enjoying each other's company exactly so anyway um so the a fame a note about the recording of a famous section claire tory's uh 
mm. vocal solo, essentially, on Great yeah. Gig in the Sky. So she was apparently... Which, speaking of TikTok... Oh, yeah? That song, that bit in particular, Weird. is like the last couple of months has been making the rounds on TikTok. It's Strange. like a very popular sound to use. Well, I wonder if it's because that the 50th anniversary version came out like this summer. So maybe that's oh, probably. Yeah. You know what's weird? I got that because I weirdly, well, I think I had a digital version of Dark Side of the Moon, but it was like a CD rip or something. So, which is right. solid, but still, I was like, I'll get the 50th anniversary one um, just to get like, you know, the best version, whatever. It's quiet. Like, I play it in my car, and I have to turn it up, like, two or three notches louder than I every other album. And it's that. a brand new, you know, remastered version. It's really strange. But Is it's, it on your iTunes? Yeah, and I bought it off iTunes. You can iTunes. go into settings and turn it up. Oh, I should do that. You're right. But it's just weird, because, like, yeah, anyway. Um, That's bizarre. I fucking hate when they do that. I've bought albums that are that same way, like, digitally, and it's like, why, why would you put it out this quiet right like it's mostly no. just a little weird because most of the time i only have a problem with stuff being too quiet when it is like an old album or something that i rip off youtube mm-hmm. or you know like it's not a very yeah. high quality thing this is right. pretty much the first time i've ever had a problem oh yeah volume adjust right there there was a beatles album that i bought when yeah. they first put all their stuff on itunes in like 2009 or whatever yeah um that was like incredibly quiet. I don't, and it wasn't all of them. It was just one album. I don't know. Yeah. All right. So when Claire Torrey was brought in, it was apparently on Alan's, Alan Parsons' uh, suggestion, and the Floyd were pretty skeptical that this was a good idea. So, and apparently she was skeptical too. <laughs> so, uh, yep, like, so they I had, so uh, just to give a tiny bit of background, so Great Game in the Sky, when they did it live, I think the music was the same, but it was called the mortality sequence, and it was supposed to be this whole commentary on religion. And right. so they would read, apparently, like, passages from the Bible during it and different stuff like that to sort of get across the idea of, like, fuck religion. When they started recording, very interestingly, um, which I I mean, I knew this was a thing definitely in the 60s. I was kind of unaware of, like, the early, mid-70s of this being that strong, but they were apparently nervous enough about, like, christian america that they were like maybe we don't do like a super obvious anti-religion song so they changed it to be kind of more vague like it was still about that but they got rid of the bible patter basically so they didn't really have anything vocally on that song so anyway so alan said well what if we bring in someone to to sing and do some vocal runs or whatever no one liked the idea (laughs) even including claire tory um but apparently they brought her in on a sunday so she got double pay so she showed up hell yeah uh, yeah so she probably got paid more than alan parsons for this who knows oh yeah anyway um so amazingly and this is such a pink floyd thing to do we have no melody lyrics or ideas just start singing <laughs> they suck it's so, so bad well, it's funny because i gotta think they might not know that that sucks because they're like this is the only way we've ever recorded is us just yeah. being like we got nothing let's figure it out and so then they bring yeah. in this professional like singer for hire and then give them that and they don't realize maybe that they're just being assholes who knows all right so they did a bunch of takes apparently davy was the one was the only one who was really giving her feedback um and he would give yeah. her some feedback she never felt comfortable but he was saying like oh yeah that's more <laughs> what we're looking for or like lean into you did this thing that was good or, well, yeah. we really want more of this kind of emotion, whatever. He gave her some feedback. 
Um, so, and after what ended up being the final take, she was like, I'm done this. Like, I don't think I can do what you guys want. I don't know what you want. I'm embarrassed. Like she thought it sounded like shit when they listened to the, when they listened to the playback, she was like, this is just dumb wailing. Like it sounds awful. Um, and was positive. Like I got paid, but there's no fucking way this is on the album. Right. (laughs) Um, and left, but then apparently all of the Floyd fellows were like, holy fucking shit, this is it, guys. And so, <laughs> and now it's one of the most famous pieces of music, rock music of all time. So, yeah, that's funny. Really funny, like really strange. And also, I guess I didn't get, I should have looked up more from her if she had some interview, like after it came out about like, like going to the record or getting a random check or call from EMI of like, oh, hey, just so you know, yeah. like we are putting that out. And go, what the fuck? <laughs> It, it's funny that, like, it seems like whenever a rock band like this gets a woman in the studio, it's, like, always weird circumstances where it's, like, um, like the Stones had... Sounds like I the start to, like, if there was, like, a 70s rock Jeff Dunham, like, man, whenever a rock band yeah. gets a woman in the studio... <laughs> it Like, I mean, they got that one woman uh, who's on Tumbling Dice just in the oh, middle right. of the night... And she was like, yes, right, eight months pregnant or something, yeah, yeah. and she like killed it in two takes. And then this lady's like, um, I came in because I was getting double paid, <laughs> yeah. and I fucking hated it, and they didn't tell me what to do. Right, and I thought um, it, and I was like, legitimately embarrassed leaving. Of like, I sucked. <laughs> yeah, that that rules. Mm-hmm. I, I hope there's an interview <laughs> with her. Um. I feel like Sandy Denny, who is the woman who sings on Battle of Evermore, mm. um, she's the only one that, like, I feel like I've heard had a good relationship and was like, I fucking killed it on that yeah, song. Nice. But, That's interesting. Um, okay. So, well, as we mentioned, I should have put this part of the note earlier. But anyway, so Alan Parsons, obviously, was the engineer. Um, another random note. Boy, this is all out of order. Another random note on him as their engineer. He was just assigned. <clears throat> he didn't choose it. They didn't choose them because, like I said, like he's just a salary guy at EMI. Yeah. Where it's just like, all right, you're in Studio Three this month or whatever, and there he went. Um, so he worked on. Oh, he it worked on. It sucks that that's how they did it. By the way. Yeah, I mean, I I would guess that they would that like the bands probably would be able to choose if there was someone they'd worked with before or something. But for whatever reason, Pink Floyd were like, yeah, great. And they might have known. I mean, he did work on the last three apparently Beatles albums, and then was also. He wasn't like the lead engineer, but he was in the studio for Adam Hartmother. So they yeah, they at least okay. knew of him enough, I guess, where they were like, all right, sure, we'll use Alan. Great. So a guy named Chris Thomas was brought in at the end to engineer and mix the final version. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a couple different versions of this story. One is that he was brought in because Davey and Roger had like diametrically opposed views of how the final mix should sound. And they needed someone to come in and like mediate. The other version is just that they weren't really sure, like, because they were self producing for, I think, maybe only the second or third album, maybe only the second. And they just weren't really sure. So they were like, we just need to bring in, and they'd been working on it for so long. They're like, we just need a guy who's never heard it, knows nothing, like, can come in and just give us a good idea. So, anyway, but. If we go with the version that they didn't like, that they had different views, Davey wanted a, quote, 
big swampy wet sound <laughs> with lots of reverb. God. These guys suck. Yeah. And Roger wanted a very dry sound, which he referenced apparently the first Plastic Ono Band record as how he wanted it to sound. Um, so Chris Why? came in, helped them finish it. Ultimately, it was like little in the middle, but definitely more toward the reverby. But big it got sound. much back. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, more toward the reverby kind of big epic sound that Davey was going for. But I think I think not all the way, you know, there. So. Yeah. So all of the spoken word parts throughout the album, uh, which make up a pretty significant part of the album, it's kind of one of those things where when you listen to it a lot, at least for me, I kind of forget. I, I tune them out a little bit, and then mm-hmm. I listen to it like very purposely for this episode and was like, oh, holy shit, there's talking on like every single song. It, I kind of forget. That thing I really hadn't noticed before either. Yeah. So anyway, all of that was recorded at Abbey Road um, interviewing different Abbey Road staff. So, like, there's a bunch of stuff used from the doorman who worked there. There's, like, just a bunch of random engineers and, you know, people Mm -hmm. who worked in the, who were brought in. Roger wrote out, like, question cards to interview them with random stuff. Like, they would start with just, like, really inane questions and then be like, when were you last violent? And, like, what do you think about if you think you're going to die? Like, shit like that to then get, like, the darker questions. Um Apparently, so Paul McCartney, apparently, and, and Wings uh, were recording Red Rose Speedway at the time in a different Abbey Road studio. So Paul and Linda showed up to be interviewed, uh, but apparently they made they gave joke answers the whole time so they didn't use them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the most Paul McCartney thing I've really ever heard in my fun. life. Yeah, just like they couldn't take it seriously. Um, but apparently, Wings guitarist Henry McCullough uh did get a line in i forget exactly which song this is in but it's i don't know i was really drunk at the time uh which is a it's on money a really sad line because i think he died from like the same way john bonham did from being too drunk essentially but it's it's one of the loops that plays at the end of okay yeah yeah but henry mccullough dies very very soon he's a good guitarist though i think he's the one great guitarist i think they go from henry mccullough to jimmy mccullough because Jimmy McCullough is the one on the live Wings at the Speed of Sound, or Wings Across America. And he's, yeah, that sounds Jimmy right. Jimmy McCullough is a great guitar player. Yeah. They both are. Um, oh, and then I do, this is a purely visual bit, but I guess people can look it up. In the book, sorry, more pages flipping. There's a picture of Paul McCartney when they talk about him being interviewed. And it's, it's hard to make out. You might not be able to make it out at all on the camera. But he has a keep on trucking t-shirt on. <laughs> Hell yeah. Paul in, that in the rules. studio. Yeah. Fucking fantastic. Okay. What a guy. I know. He's so great. Well, isn't he there's that photo of him at whatever music festival with Linda from later in the seventies when he has like an awful mustache. I feel like they're wearing funny t-shirts in that picture too, but I forget. That's like an old, I feel speaking like I of social media, about. that's like an old Tumblr photo where I feel like I would see that photo all the fucking time on Tumblr. Anyway. I bet if I went on my, logged into my old Tumblr finding <laughs> the password, it would have been reposted by me. Yeah. Yes. All right. So here's where we get to the technical things and the reason that Abbey Road apparently was, yeah, kind of a piece of shit studio. So they were still using a, well... I actually am forgetting now whether they had a four track or an eight track. They might have had an eight track, but whichever one they had, it wasn't enough for what they needed. Right. I mean, it just 
generally speaking, for the next 20 years after this album is recorded. Right. Like, still I mean, enough. at this point, a 16th track is the bare minimum, right? Like, for a recording oh. studio. And, like, a 24 I mean, track is also kind of a bit of a bare minimum. It's all digital. They don't even have tracks. Well, if like you were that. doing an analog, I guess by the end of the analog era, it would be, like, 16 track would be kind I mean, of a bare minimum. That would be, yeah. Okay. Like, very bare minimum. Yeah. Um. Okay. I would say like, 24 Just to get an idea. Be... Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I was thinking. So they had to mix all these songs down two or three times, which we talked about a lot on the Beach Boys Boys. Yeah. Um, is essentially when. In the Stone Studs. Yeah. Just they record everything on the four to eight tracks, and then they have to merge all that onto one single track, so then they can use the rest of the tracks to keep recording onto the master tape. Um. It did apparently affect their sound quality a lot on this album to the point where, like, the people making the album, the band and Alan Parsons and stuff, are like, if you could hear a version that we didn't have to mix down, it would be mind-blowing. But what's wild is that the final version that is mixed down, like, three times is considered to be, like, the best-sounding album of all time or one of the best-sounding albums of all time. So it kind of reminded me of there's a story about Katie Lied, a Steely Dan album, where they were studio perfectionist kind of guys. And so that was in like 75, I want to say. They had some fancy new technology that they were like, this is the best sounding album that'll ever be recorded, essentially. And then something got fucked up in the process and they had to like remix it on a different machine they couldn't use the fancy new machine and they were always pissed about it of like this thing sounds like shit and it still is like one of the better sounding albums of all time but they were like (laughs) so mad that it sounded terrible so kind of similar where it's like yeah no it sounds perfect like it's the cliche Um, one that people would test their new stereos on kind of shit right or like set their eq to and yet the band and alan parsons are like it's not it could have been a lot better though that's still a frustration with a lot of um, musicians where yeah. it's like they will, you know, have it be mastered like 10 times over. Yeah. And then once it goes online, like people are just downloading shitty MP3s of it. Yeah. So it's, you know, it like an MP3 is never going to sound as good as like the raw file and yeah. so it's like oh this actually sounds like shit compared to the raw file that i have and nobody yeah. will ever know that you know what we also talked about this on a previous episode wish i could have gotten one of them ponos baby okay listen to those raw only i'm a raw only raw guy only okay that's what it says on my grinder profile mm-hmm. um so and then also the last uh sort of technical detail we have here so they they stuck with the cross-faded song idea you know so all the songs would run into each other Mm -hmm. and apparently the only way they could figure out to achieve this was to edit the master tape directly which is a scariest shit thing to do so they wild physically spliced the master tape and put it back together in order to crossfade the songs the way that they wanted, which is kind of wild to me that that's what it took. Um, for some reason, that feels yeah, like that, I mean, by 72-ish, they would have had it. a way to do it, but maybe not. So anyway, so apparently that was a very you know scary few days when they were like, the master tapes and pieces right now, so let's hope this works. <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, so, but what's also a little wild is that since they had to edit the master tape directly, 
they did not hear a final version of the album until it was actually finished and there was no going back. Um, which is really also scary. Which is fucking crazy. Yeah, but they were happy with it. So, or at least as happy as you know, they they didn't try and stop it being released or anything. They deluded themselves into being happy, like when you get a bad tattoo and you're like, <laughs> "No, I like yeah, it." Yeah, no, it's really good, and actually, I don't regret yeah. it at all. So, yeah. yeah. Um. Okay. Well. Do we want to go ahead and take another break and come back for our Rolling Stone review, our track by track, and our rating of Dark Side of the Moon? And welcome back. We're talking Dark Side of the Moon. And let's go ahead and get into uh, the album release, the album's reception, and the track by track. We basically, you know, not only do we just take all of our shit from Wikipedia, we also basically follow the format basically of a Wikipedia format, page. Yeah. <laughs> and album release, album reception, album, um, oh, God damn it! what's the word? Uh, track listing track listing yes and then what is it called when it's like album impact on the future or whatever what oh word yeah is that whatever anyway also critical reception yes critical reception yeah that's right okay so uh what to promote the album by the way so just just some interesting details i guess about the album release oh so the album art obviously let's talk about that basically i think you know we talked about the nirvana cover art i think this is absolutely the most famous album cover of all time it's got. I think be. easily. I mean, and if we're gonna go with the top three, maybe Abbey Road, and then I was gonna mind. say this or Abbey Road. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. I think this just has to because it's simpler, basically. Like Abbey Road is a complete, a totally iconic thing, but like you can't put, just like your story, you can't put Abbey Road on a pair of pajama pants, but you can yeah. absolutely put the Dark Side Precisely. of the Moon logo on a pair of PJs. So, I think this one um, takes the cake. I would. Probably in my mind, if I had to look at I if I could pick the same band twice, it's probably this, Abbey Road, Sgt. Peppers. Oh, if I yeah. can't pick the same band twice, then it's this, Abbey Road, Nevermind, probably. I think it's got to be Nevermind. That's a, just yeah. a massive one. Okay. Um, so, album art, as always, a hypnosis joint. Um, the band, as they've done... Boy, I think since Saucer Full of Secrets, I don't think they've had their name or the album title on the cover off the top of my head. Right, yeah. We talked about this. They rarely do it. Um, I actually have the Pink Floyd stuff from, pulled up. Yeah, on Saucer Full, they have Pink Floyd at the top. They didn't have it at the front of Piper at the Gates of Dawn, though. So they threw at least The Wall, which is all I have on my iTunes currently. They mm-hmm. only have their... They only have the band name on Saucer Full of Secrets. They never have an album name on the cover. Yeah. So Right. That's what we had talked about. So they wanted to keep that. Um, and apparently Ricky had the impetus for this idea. He didn't come up with it. But he said, let's come up with something simple but really dramatic and like kind of logo-like or just, you know, an icon that's really going to catch people. And so yeah. apparently at some point Storm was flipping through an old book an old like photo book from the fifties and found this photo of a prism 
a I think three dimensional you know piece of glass prism though like reflecting light off a window and adapted that into the album cover <laughs> um just a couple other notes I mean I guess since it is the most famous one of all time the so the front everyone knows the back of the vinyl is that inverted so the pyramids upside right. down and then the inside is like the rainbow line going through but then it's like a is it a cardiogram whatever like the heartbeat yeah. kind of thing is so it's like that running through the middle which is apparently roger's idea um mm-hmm. and then they also printed the lyrics for the first and eh, i think they printed lyrics in the wall but they printed the lyrics for the first time at least for a pink floyd album um really yeah mm-hmm. so because roger was really proud and honestly i think the whole band was they should be they're really good lyrics so anyway but they printed the lyrics it came with apparently two posters which i did not know because i sought out an original vinyl copy of this years ago when i was a vinyl collector for the yeah. one poster I knew of, but there's apparently a second one. The one poster I knew yeah. of is photos that I think I mentioned a few episodes ago are in my book. They're old photos. They're from like 1970 of them playing live. Um, yeah, which is a that cool one's poster. Very famous. Yeah, yeah, that's a great poster. I don't know if I said this on the podcast already. I might have, but that's a fun poster where my like three year old niece was over recently, and I have a bunch of posters in like a corner, my kind of music poster corner. And she looked at that one and went, why are they so scary? Because <laughs> they're all in like weird red mood lighting kind of playing live. And I was like, oh, they're not scary. Yeah. They're just, they really enjoy playing music. <laughs> That's funny. Um, And then apparently the second poster was a like kind of green tinted photo of the Great Pyramids. So, which is kind of cool. I'm, you know, I'm intrigued at least. I'd like to find that, find that poster. Oh, at some point. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, I don't. For some reason, I don't think I ever have. But um, do you want me to send you a link? I just found it. I mean, I, I like I've seen it online, but I like I, I didn't know that oh, that poster gotcha. existed. So, um, anyway, but always fun. Bands should start doing posters that aren't tour posters. But I know, Peter, you'll be proud of this. I finally framed mm-hmm. my. All things must pass. Nice. All things must pass. I haven't hung it up in years because I wanted to put it in a frame. Yeah. Because I didn't want to put holes in it or ruin it because it's like an original pressing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I nice. finally got a frame for it. See, that's the one I would think my niece would be like, "Why is that so scary?" He does but for look some scary reason. The pink float. It. It's so dark. Yeah. Um. All right. So to promote the album, as part of the album's promotion, I should say EMI played it at. A, a planetarium in london which is a cool idea and you know they still do we've talked about it before um i've seen it yeah exactly but apparently rick was the only one who showed up because huh. the other three band members boycotted it because they thought the sound system at the planetarium sucked <laughs> god what douchebags i also just really love and you know what i gotta say it's funny that nick got cajoled into not showing up because i feel like this is a classic rick and nick show up and yeah. then Davey and Roger stay behind. But anyway, it's just he really was, funny. Yeah. Monty Python was also on that yeah, night. So he yeah. was like, yeah, it's yeah. the sound system, guys. So, yeah. Um, so on release to their record label. So this is a really strange situation. So they, this is their last record with EMI. I think they moved to Columbia after this. We'll cover it on the next episode, obviously. Um, or on the next Pink Floyd album episode. So 
they recorded this even though they were leaving EMI, um, whatever guy who was in charge of, you know, sales promotions or whatever at EMI was like, oh, holy shit, this is, this could be huge. And just, it's kind of wild because like, obviously it made EMI a lot of money. So there was an advantage to them. But as we've seen so many times in the past, record companies don't give a shit. Even when it's like the Rolling Stones record company, they're still like, eh, why would we promote it? You know, like they just don't care. And so this guy was so taken with his album, was so convinced it was going to be a hit. He put together this huge promo campaign and especially focused on the U.S. where they'd never done well, as we've talked about. They barely have tried in the U.S. Yeah, Um, they're not well known. Yeah, their, their last single, I think, I mean, Free 4 was a single, but it didn't do anything. Their last actual, like, single anyone would know in the U.S. came out in 1967. Right. So, so he puts a ton of money and effort into promoting this album and promoting it in the U.S. Um, and it obviously worked. I mean, it's the biggest selling album of all time. And so yeah. both good for the band and good for EMI to some degree. I mean, because I assume they got... Not literally the best selling album of for a long time it was i guess so yeah. anyway um so yeah kind of interesting also alan parsons uh was nominated for a grammy for best engineered recording did not win who won over him do you Fuck. know i know i have to look that up and i somehow forgot 1973 grammys best engineered sorry i and what's crazy is that i think i i even looked it up to double check that he was Oh my god, it's a classical album. I even looked oh, wait, it up to double check he was even nominated, and I forgot to look up who won. Oh, non-classical. So it should be 74. 74, okay. Um, So here are the nominees. Dark Side of the Moon, Alan Parsons. Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton John. Long Train okay. Runnin' by the Doobie Brothers. No Secrets mm-hmm. by Carly Simon. Uh, and then Inner Visions by Stevie Wonder. Do you want to guess who would- won? Not Dark Side of the Moon. Not Dark Side of the Moon. Will you read them off again? Yeah. Uh, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, Long Train Running, No Secrets, and Inner Visions by Stevie Wonder. Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Inner Visions by Stevie Wonder. Okay. Yeah. The year before that, I can't hate Moods that. by Neil Diamond won. This <laughs> <So. laughs> actually, so they started, uh, this is actually a pretty good list. Like, these are some solid albums. Okay, anyway. So. I feel like you could say that of any. Yeah, true. Any Grammy list. You're like, every three years, it's going to be something amazing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So the album, Dark Side of the Moon, by Pink Floyd, uh, was released March 10th in the U.S. and March 23rd in the U.K. No idea why there was a weird two-week gap. Um, It went to number one in the U.S., only went to number two in the U.K. Wow. Yeah. Which is really, really crazy. The first time they've done better in the U.S. than U.K. Yeah. Um, also, boy, maybe their highest charting album in the U.K. I'm not going to look that up in the, at the moment, but my memory is, is failing. I'm me. pretty sure. It, it kind of seems like it has to be. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. And then also, like I referenced earlier, it, it sold a gajillion, 45 million copies. It also holds the record uh, for the most weeks on the Billboard charts. Um, non-consecutively, it spent nine, 917 weeks on the Billboard charts. I believe... Holy fuck. 
I forget the exact date. There's it's something like it didn't come off the Billboard charts till like 1985 or something. Like it was just it was really? on the sales charts for that long. Huh. Let me let me Google it now. I, I guess people were I really getting into drugs at this time. So. I mean, it really was for the 70s, for the entire 70s and 80s probably. It was the mm-hmm. vinyl album of like if you if you're getting a stereo and you right. need an album, just grab Dark Side of the Moon. Like yeah. Um. When did Dark Side of the Moon come off the charts for the first time? I think it was something like a decade. Oh, never mind. Okay, I'm I'm way wrong about that. Entered the chart March 73, went mm-hmm. off the chart 74, came back 75, and then was like on again, off again the whole time. But okay, I really yeah. thought I, okay, okay. well. Hopefully, at least one other person listening also had that weird misconception and is now now knows that they're not correct. Okay, so it's been 917 weeks in total on the Billboard charts. Second place, first of all, do you want to guess the artist? I don't know if you're going to guess the album. Well, either way, you can guess. And then also, do you want to guess how many weeks? <laughs> I'm going to guess it's much fewer weeks, like 400 or something. 386, so you're about right. 386 so less than half way less than half um i'll give you a hint it's not an american or british artist so like it's a little a little surprising to me at least it's not someone i would initially think of as having no that's a really good guess though it's bob marley and the whalers greatest hits (laughs) an album called that is called legend yeah insane yeah 386 weeks i have that on my itunes yeah all right okay so and the singles were money uh which was edited down to about four minutes from i think seven minutes yeah that went up to number 13 on i believe just the u.s charts is what i'm going off now uh and Mm -hmm. then us and them was another single kind of strangely but i think they were hoping to hit it big uh only went to number 72 so really the definition of an album rock era album like they don't have a hit single even a little bit and yet this album is you know one of the great biggest selling albums of all time so all right so let's see some of the other artists credited aside from the band obviously uh so we have claire tory with her famous vocal solo we have doris troy Leslie Duncan, Liza Strike, and Barry St. John, all credited as singing backup vocals. We have Dick Perry on saxophone on Us and Them and Money. Yep. Chandler. And uh, and that's it. Those are the only other credited musicians. Wow. I would have guessed more. It's like the opposite of a Rolling Stones album. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so let's go ahead and get into our Rolling Stone review. All right, so we have our Rolling Stone review. We will also, as promised last week on Obscured by Clouds, start reading the Robert Christgau reviews. We have our review from a person named Lloyd Grossman who wrote two reviews for Rolling Stone, at least according to their website. Dark Side of the Moon, and boy, who is the artist here? I don't recognize this at all. What's the name of the album? Future Games? I think it's by... I think it's an early Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. 
fifth fifth studio album okay. by Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, that's a confusing review because the review never says it's by <laughs> never says the band it's by. <laughs> that is weird. It references a bunch of people, but it's just like giving you kind of a little bit of history about how Pink Floyd or how Fleetwood Mac formed. Anyway, all right, so very strange. This came out May 24, 1973. Once again, classic Rolling Stone waiting like three months to review something. Of course. That's kind of their thing. Um, it's about eh, like four or five paragraphs. I'll skip around just a little bit, but... All right. One of Britain's most successful and long-lived avant-garde rock bands, Pink Floyd emerged relatively unsullied from the mire of mid-60s British psychedelic music. <laughs> yeah. Um, although that phase of the band's development was of short duration, they have from that time been the pop scene's preeminent techno-rockers, four musicians with the command of electronic instruments who wield an arsenal of sound effects with authority and finesse. Okay. Um, while Pink Floyd albums were hardly hot tickets in the shops, they attracted an enormous following through their U.S. tours. There we go! Someone's backing up what I was saying earlier, where I'm like, I'm pretty sure this... Okay. Um, yeah. So... Dark Side of the Moon is Pink Floyd's ninth album. Fucking hell, I can't believe that's true. It's true, because we've done all of them, but that's just wild yeah. that they've released nine albums. It took them this long, too, imagine, which is very funny. Imagine a modern band being nine albums in, and then you being like, no, it's actually their best one yet. Like, just literally no yeah. one would care. <laughs> Nobody. Like, by Harry Styles' ninth album, he'll be doing duets with Tony Bennett. Okay. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, Dark Side of the Moon is Pink Floyd's ninth album and is a single extended piece rather than a collection of songs. Yes and no. That seems to just be actively ignoring the fact that it writes out ten song names on the back of the album. <laughs> but whatever. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's see. Even though it's a concept album, a number of the cuts can stand on their own. Time is a country-tinged rocker with a powerful guitar solo, and Money is broadly and satirically played with appropriately raunchy sax. Uh, the non-vocal on the run is a standout with footsteps racing to side, from side to side uh, and explosions. Uh, throughout the album, the band lays down a solid framework with which they embellish, which they embellish with synthesizers, sound effects, and spoken voice tape. The sound is lush and multi-layered while remaining clear and well-structured. There are a few weak spots. David Gilmour's vocals are sometimes weak and lackluster. The Great Gig in the Sky... Yeah probably could have been shortened or dispensed with. <laughs> Damn. Sorry, Claire. Wow. Yeah. But these are minor quibbles. The Dark Side of the Moon is a fine album with a textural and conceptual richness that not only invites, but demands involvement. There's a certain grandeur here that exceeds mere musical melodramatics and is rarely attempted in rock. It has the, it has the true flash that comes from the excellence of a superb performance. So pretty, I mean... Except for not liking Great Gig in the Sky, which I really thought was supposed to... I, I'll spoil it a little bit. I don't love, love Great Gig in the Sky, but I kind of thought that was supposed to be, like, one of the best songs on this album, so... People love it. From, like, the, you know, kind of whatever you would say. Okay, so now we'll get to Robert Criscow real quick. I will say that is... Maybe the most even-keeled Rolling Stone <laughs> review we've read from this era. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Okay, let me open up the grades real quick so we know what this grade means. Okay, Dark Side of the Moon. With its technological mastery and its conventional wisdom once removed, this is a kitsch masterpiece. Taken too seriously by definition, but not without charm. 
It may sell on sheer oral sensationalism, but the studio effects do transmit David Gilmour's guitar solos into something more than they were when he played them. <laughs> Uh, its taped speech fragments may be old hat, but they cohere musically. And if its pessimism is received, that doesn't make the ideas untrue. There are even times, especially when Dick Perry's saxophone undercuts the electronic pomp, when this record brings its cliches to life, which is what pop is supposed to do, even the kind with delusions of grandeur. <laughs> Boy, I love that they both use grandeur in their last sentences, yeah, but very I was just noticing that. So he gave it a B. An admirable effort that aficionados of the style or artist will probably find quite listenable, which feels kind of insulting with hindsight. Yeah, it does. Honestly, a B is wild. That's like saying that about like rumors, where you're like, okay, it yeah. may be, but also everyone in the world has heard this album. Yeah. So, But you have to like that specific genre to get into yeah. it. Yeah, you know? a little interesting. Okay, so I rarely disagree with Robert Criscow, but there we go. All right, let's go ahead and get into our patented track by track. Track by track. You know, despite all the songs running together, I've actually honestly never really noticed that. Like, they do, but it's pretty easy to listen to them individually. Um, like, if you cut one out and put it on a playlist, it doesn't sound ridiculous, like, with having super harsh cuts There's at the end, There's a few. You know? There's a few. So, all right, it starts with Speak to Me, uh, which is credited to Nick Mason, uh, which is apparently a gift from Roger at the time, so that because Nick Mason was the only person in the band who wasn't credited with a song, uh, which apparently oh. Roger later regretted when they got into a lot of legal trouble because it just it was one more hurdle for him to get past to try and get rights back to all his music. Yeah. So they. Oh, sorry. Somebody's knocking at me. <laughs> Someone's knocking at my heart. Uh, originally, they apparently recorded or, or had a recording of an actual heartbeat, uh, but apparently it was too disturbing sounding, so they recorded it on drums instead. <laughs> and I really hope they recorded like an old man's arrhythmic heartbeat, yeah. and they were like, it's freaky, I hate it. Well, apparently also this heartbeat is like wildly slow, like you should, you're dying if this is your heartbeat. <laughs> Also, I believe on the original vinyl pressing, I actually forgot to grab my copy to check, but I read this somewhere. Speak to Me and Breathe are credited as the same song. Yeah. And then on later pressings, they or on later you know CD releases and pressings, they broke them out. And then at some point, also they added in the air to breathe, so that. Yeah. But originally, it was just Speak to Me slash Breathe as track one. Hmm. It's it's weird to have that as just one. It's like fifteen seconds. Well, that's what I, but, I... I agree. Like, I think they should be the same song because Speak to Me is so yeah. short. It's already over, right? We're into Breathe. Yeah, yeah. now we're at Breathe in the yeah. air. So Breathe is credited to Roger, Davey, and Rick. Um, oh, people will love this. Apparently at different points, it's either called Breathe in the Air or Breathe, parentheses, parentheses in the air, and parentheses. Wow. Yeah. They really need to get their fucking shit together, man. Yeah. Uh, Do you think it's separated in different ones because of him giving that to Nick? I mean, like maybe, but it wasn't thing, on the maybe? original copy. But yeah, you're right. At some point, that's it what might I mean. Have been. Like it, it wouldn't have been on the original until like 
there was an issue with legality. Oh, that's right? a good point. Yeah, so actually, you're, split you're probably right about that. That's a really good thought. All right, so Davey double-tracked his vocals on this one. Yeah. Which he'll do a lot on this album. He'll either double-track or, you know, double-track to harmonize with himself. Um, he sounds good. He does sound good. Yeah, I don't agree at all with the Rolling Stone review that there's bad vocals on this album. Like, I think... We'll get there. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah. No, but I think I mean they've really figured out their production by this point. I love that organ sound. The organ's good. A little bit of it sounds like a little bit of pedal steel in the background there. Yeah. It's credited yeah, as pedal so. steel They've figured out how to craft their big, long bullshit songs that I don't really like into a three-minute chunk that's a song. Yeah. And you know what? They won't really use that again for a little while. (laughs) It's kind of funny because they do, yes, they learn how to do it, and then they forget that for a few albums and then get back to it. So Now it's on the run. Yeah. I do. I really love Breathe. Um, I think it's, it's a good song. It's a highlight for me of the early album. Like, I think it's a really great opener. It, um, it's a strange song in that it's not a ballad, but it's also not, like... Rockin'. Like, yeah. it kind of feels... Yeah, like, it almost feels like it should have a guitar solo. I actually... Here's the one thing. I think it it should have some sort of piano or organ solo on it. Something. It feels An like... An organ solo would be it sick. It feels like it's song. just a little too short, especially because, like, now we're on to On the Run, mm-hmm. and there's more... Like, it feels like there's a little bit more instrumental than I would love on this album mm-hmm. in a way where it's like let's make breathe like you know like David Gilmore gets multiple solos on some songs like let's get Ricky something yeah. going on anyway um, so On the Run is credited to Davey and Raj uh, they did most of this by sequencing on synthesizers and you know recording tape loops and everything uh, yeah. use some sound effects from the EMI library stuff like that <laughs> that's fun um, so this is directly influenced by their touring and especially Rick's hatred of travel. He apparently, he not only just didn't like all the logistics of it, he had strong anxiety about being on planes or being on buses where he just always had this anxiety about like, we're going to get in a crash or something's going to go wrong or... I get it. So yeah, this is supposed to be them like kind of racing through the airport, late for their plane, etc. So... I really like this song, but like I was just referencing, it's like almost four minutes long. I'd be okay with this being, you know, 40 seconds shorter, shorter. and then yeah. having a little bit more of like Rick on Breathe in the Air or something. Yeah. Just especially because it's very early in an album to get a almost four minute instrumental, kind of experimental sound going on. Yeah, I... I mean, I don't like this because it's not a song, but <laughs> I will say it, it within the context of the album, it works from going from the tempo on breathe to time. Yeah. Like, I feel like that's its only purpose on the album and because they're fucking weirdos. 
It could have been shorter though. Like they yeah. could have effectively changed the tempo from breathe to time in like 40 seconds. What's well, also and still gotten oh. all their fun little things in, you know. Yeah. Um, what's wild is that apparently there's covers of this song, and I don't really know. Like, I guess you can cover an instrumental, but who cares? <laughs> this is barely an instrumental, though. <laughs> apparently, of course, the Flaming Lips have covered it, and then apparently a band called The Seatbelts recorded a version of it. I got scared. Like his worst nightmare of the plane crashing, you know? Yeah. You know, I've got anxiety on planes. Yeah? I think a lot of people Just do. landing. Oh, just landing? Interesting. Everything else is fine. Do not like landing. You know, I, I kind of hate all of it, but the first few times I flew, taking off was the freakiest part. Like the feeling when your stomach kind of drops yeah. when you take off. Like that was the freakiest part right. to me. Now and now I'm used to that. Yeah. I hate landing. See, yeah, I now I'm I I kind of like taking off, but then being in the mm-hmm. air and bothers me, and then landing bothers mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Anyway, being we're in the air. Sorry, now. breathe in the air. Excuse me. <laughs> okay, so now we're at time. Um, we have all these nice clock sounds going on. I love this intro so much. I do. Whoa, is this the intro to Back to the Future? Honestly, it's like a full almost two and a half minutes, I want to say, the instrumental intro. I think it is too long, but I really love it. If they just trimmed it a little bit, it would be perfection to me. But There's some stuff they could button up on this yeah, album. Yeah, I love I'll the say, clocks, listening and I love to it the today. creepy like, ticking, and yeah. then with the like deep synth and guitar notes coming up. Yeah. I yeah, will say, so I listened to this super a couple dark. times yeah, um, since, I mean, we've had a lot of time to listen to it. Um, but I've listened to it all the way through without like looking at what the songs are playing, just like listening to it. And then I've looked at it while the songs are like changing. It's much better just to listen to without knowing the song has changed. I I agree. It's, Um, it is like, it's, it's a much better album to just put on and enjoy as an album because it bothers you less when you're like, yeah, like the things with breathe and on the run where you're like. It's better to yeah. just experience it. I agree. Yeah. The first two... The first time I ever listened to this album all the way through was uh, in our History of Rock and Roll class. Oh, yeah. Where yes. we did Dark Side of the Rainbow. Yeah. Um, and then I have probably... That prob- was your first time. Yeah. It was, well, I mean, I think I had, like... Popped your Pink Floyd Intentionally, there, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I had listened to w- The Wall all the way through. Oh, okay. And I think Wish You Were Here. And I... I feel like I had listened to this all the way through, but not like as intentionally as as that is. And then um, I had probably I've probably listened to it between then and the next time that I'm going to talk about, like two or three times. But then I saw it at a planetarium, and that kind of ruled. Yeah. It was awesome. I also liked as much as like it does not match up as people want it to. Oh. Yeah, I love Nick. You know, Nick, not that great, but that's a great intro, little drum fill. Sorry, go ahead. Just that getting into um, the song is one of my favorite. No, and this part of the song, I don't care about talking over the intro. (laughs) 
the radio edit of this where it just starts right there. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. One of the best songs Pink Floyd has ever done and ever will do. Yeah, I think I mentioned it, I believe, on the Obscured by Clouds episode, but this is in my top 30 Pink Floyd songs. This oh, thing is. It's gotta be. Perfection. The full version, I think, as well. Um, also, in the intro, all the little Tom riffs and everything yeah. were roto toms, apparently, which were an electronic drum, an early electronic drum set. So that was kind of a wild thing for Nick to be pulling out. Um, I, did, I just like love, I was saying I did oh, sorry, enjoy. Go ahead. Oh, you no, you. Go I was ahead. just going to say about, about this song. I just love how funky this song is. Like, I feel like it's good. For some reason, it took me a while to kind of put together that like this thing is more like bluesy and kind of dirty and funky than most anything they've recorded, and it's fantastic. Yeah. And this um, guitar I think solo, fucking hate this guitar solo. One of the best moments, the best moment of this album, is when it comes in and it's just immediately ticking away yeah. like his voice on that so good it's like yeah. it kind of comes out of nowhere god and the delay on the guitar so like i mean it rules it's good robert Crisco isn't wrong that the effects really make it but i i mean i don't agree they'd be bad without the effects but the effects do add so much yeah which but that's like a invalid criticism i think I yeah think, i agree with rock music like, like you know, it's just part not of even it. necessarily with this album in particular. Like, I think, I mean, the Edge has made an entire career off of not being able to play guitar, but being very good at effects. And whether I like it or not, you know, yeah. people love that music. Right. So it's like, I think, I mean, there are entire bands that their whole thing is like effects, yeah. or there's like electronica and stuff like. I think that's a really invalid criticism that, like, the effects are what makes this album. I think that's silly. No. Because when was the last time you listened to an album with zero <laughs> effects on it? Yeah. Never. You have literally never done that. Not you, but just in general. Um, his voice is so good on this. Yeah, and the I guitar. love all the little fills in the verses. Yeah. Um, I also love that one of the first lines in this song is, like, sitting around, or, like, fritting away the hours that we waste away or yeah. something. I messed that up, but... It's also just really funny. Uh, this is not what this song's about, but it's a little bit autobiographical with the Floyd. <laughs> yeah. Like, they really, I mean, I'm going to get to this in my comments post record, but it's a little bit like Sid Barrett left the band and then they haven't done anything for five years to some degree. Nothing like, of subs. they've released like seven albums, but it also is a little bit like they haven't done anything. So, but this song Surely. is very much all about Roger kind of putting together because they're all in their late 20s at this point like oh yeah we spent our 20s being like so like our career's gonna start at some point and then i got to this age and realized like oh my career start it's already been going i've been wasting the last decade like we need to start you know living our lives basically and just the how time yeah. affects you in that way and also just yeah in a lot of ways but um, there is a band called Green Sky Bluegrass, and I know you don't like bluegrass music, <laughs> but they cover this, yeah. and it's actually incredibly Let's good. Let's write that down. We'll listen to it when we're done with the track by track. We should. Yeah. Yeah, we'll check it out. Um, but I'm going to finish my thought from way earlier. Yeah. We started talking about a great song, so I'm not like, um, 
Dark Side of the Rainbow is so dumb that people think it matches up so well. There's a few spots where it's like, that's kind of oh, interesting. PJ, save it for our Dark Side of the Rainbow episode, my man. Are we doing a Dark <laughs> yeah, Side of the Rainbow? Yeah, we're doing a Dark Side of the Rainbow episode. Okay. I think we have okay. to. I'm just going to say I enjoyed it Yeah. when we did it. All right. It was also like we got to not do class that day, which ruled. So now we're doing, or so now we're on to Great Gig in the Sky. So this is credited to Rick. And now, Claire Tory, it was not originally, Smart. but in 2005, she sued to get co-writing credit on this song, yeah. which I, I think is extremely fair. Yeah. Yeah. It's bullshit that there are still, like, I, I've said this about, like, the Rolling Stones, how, yeah. like, I mean, Bill got credit, but, like, um, Ian. What's his name? Ian Stewart. Ian wrote or guys like Nicky Hopkins. Who were yeah. like essentially a member of the band for like four years and just didn't yeah yeah, yeah. they didn't get any writing credits even though right. they wrote piano parts saxophone parts bobby keys like yeah i don't know um yeah so we're, we're talking over a little bit some of the intro stuff but some of the intro kind of mutterings here are about you know like i said they changed it from religion now it's kind of more about just general death and so they have some quotes yeah. or some interview snippets with that. Um, yeah. Here we oh, go. What the fuck? Oh no, PJ. I don't know what happened. I mean, it makes the song. Oh, yeah. If this wasn't here, it'd be boring as fuck. Well, imagine, I mean, even though I'm, I'm as much of a fan as Taking Down Religion as anybody, but imagine this song, but then with just, like, Bible passages being read over it or something, you know? Like, yeah, it's not Thumbs it's down. not that great. I think, they're, you know, they could have left, they could have done the vocal solo and added in some, you know, Bible stuff maybe, but yeah, um, but yeah you're right. Like, this song is not a lot without it. Um... I mean, it is nice and epic and everything, but you're right. It's hard to imagine this without. Oh, man. It's great. It's also just great because, like, she didn't hear this at all, but honestly, her singing and, like, the vocal soloing, it kind of sounds like a David Gilmore guitar solo. Like, it kind of is hitting, like, some similar styles and notes, I feel like, in a way. Okay. And so it, it really fits, uh, I think. Like, I could hear I if great. he went back and was like, I'll just play what she's singing on guitar, I still think it would work really well, just in terms of, like, I'm, the style. Yeah. And, um, well, and I think that same thing, but with the organ. Because, hmm. yeah. um, I mean, to me, the way the organ is played in general um, by... Um, um, Rick. Why is his name escaping me? Rick. Thank you. Uh, by Rick is very similar to how David Gilmore plays guitar. I feel like they're the most hmm. simpatico. Yeah. Um, and so there's parts where like the organ line is kind of mimicking the vocal line yeah, a little bit. And I like that. Yeah. So this closes out side one. Um, let's see, let me double check here. I believe 
So time's about seven minutes, but overall, mm-hmm. nothing crazy long on the first side. I mean, we have five songs on the first side. That's pretty normal. Right. Well, four, I guess, on the original vinyl. But... One of them barely counts as a song. So. <laughs> My thing about this song is, like, Great Gig in the Sky. I feel like right after having time, which is, like, so energetic and explosive on the album. Yeah. It brings it down a little bit. I kind of agree. This album, as much as I don't love saying this, I think it, I think in that sort of sequencing, I think it works better as a single album instead of the side A, side B. Because, like, I agree that this, like, yeah. kind of brings it down a sec, but then money coming right after, which, I mean, obviously on the record, you're going to flip it over and immediately hear money. But yeah. still, like, I think they were definitely right to do it that way. And I think it works really well when you're just listening to it, you know, digitally straight through or on a CD. All right, let's get to money. This is credited solely to Roger Waters. This is probably Davies. I don't know, probably his best vocal take. Maybe yeah. of all time. Uh, like, well, he, well yeah. we haven't listened to all their albums yet, but it's well, it maybe. Has no, to. he's got a better one coming up. All right. So... This is the famous tape loop and then the famous bass part. One of the most famous bass lines of all time, probably. Potentially the most famous bass I should have put this in our in our game. I forgot about this I was thinking that just now. Yeah. Yeah. I totally forgot this. So for some reason, I always thought this part was in 7-8 time, but it's apparently 7-4 time, so I'm an idiot. Um, fucking moron, yeah. Pete. And to be honest, I know a little bit about music theory, but I do not know the difference between 7-8 and 7-4 time. <laughs> Don't know how those are different, so... Someone wants to write in. It's twice as fast. Sure. But it's I mean, still everything only is 4-4 four, four if you don't count like an asshole. That's kind of what I'm saying. <laughs> God. A great Speaking song. Speaking of like, funky, dirty rockers, like... Oh, that organ. Yeah. I mean, this album really, like, you can kind of see a little bit why it's like... At least in the era it was released in, just the album because it's got like the dirty funky rockers for like the basic boys like me. It's yeah. got the like kind of faux thoughtful deep stuff for guys who are either stoned or like I need to listen to art when I listen to music, you know. Like me. And then it's got like I think enough kind of pretty interesting stuff, like pretty as in like beautiful and kind of interesting stuff to then pull in just more casual people. Like the Great Gig in the Sky or so, you know stuff like that where it's like, yeah. All right, and then in just a second, they're gonna switch to 4-4 four, four for the solos. That is God, the delay, very that they do that. The delay on the guitar chord there is so yeah. nice. Well, I guess the sax solo is in 7-4, all right. For the guitar solos. He's the only one who could count and do a solo in <laughs> Yeah, Davey's like, honestly, can't quite, buddy, sorry. Yeah. We'll just change it halfway through. Yeah. Uh, apparently, yeah, the single edit of this cut it down to about four minutes. I honestly don't really know what they would have cut, because this whole thing fucking slaps. There's only a little bit of dead air at the end, in terms of, like, some of the interviews, I think, are looped at the end. But... There's not two full minutes. 
trying to figure out where it changes. Oh, after, after this, yeah. They'll go... That's right. In just a sec, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. Alright. So this solo is recorded with his with one of his Stratocasters. Don't know which one, and you know what? He's swapping the next round, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. Practical the yeah. same at this point. So good. It is really good. Like just like we were talking about on Obscured by Clouds with just all the great solos. On this one, he has less solos, but it's still like he's recording like three of the best solos of all time, just on the same Nice album. double track too. Yeah. Yeah, it's sick. Alright. And then he's gonna switch to the Bill Lewis custom to get the higher notes in the second part here in a second. I love the breakdown though, it's so it's so fucking sick. Funky. Yeah it is. It's like that part in metal. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly. This is one of those that does make me Sirius XM chat. Happy that Sirius XM just plays like the full version. Where you're like, because oh, really? I want to okay. hear all six and a half minutes of money. Yeah. Yeah. Alright, here we go to the Bill Lewis. Jesus Christ. <laughs> So good. Yeah. Yeah, so that I know we're not treading any new ground here no. being like the song Money by Pink Floyd is good, yeah. but that's fuck, a, it's every good. every artist we've done has an album where we're not treading new yeah. ground. But um but it, from that guitar, you know, gear website for Davey, it is interesting to look at the necks where like the strat neck, I think he can comfortably play up to like the fifteenth fret or so. And then yeah. the Bill Lewis, it's up to like the twentieth fret. Like it's it is a much longer neck. So Definitely gets a lot higher there. And then when they come back in, Jesus Christ, yeah. I mean, it's also just very basic, because, like, Money is the most, the most basic Pink Floyd song to love, but also it's, 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 it's kind of because it's I get why like that's one of their thing. best songs, yeah. It's like loving Hey Jude. Yeah, exactly. Only knowing that. Yeah. It's a fucking great song. Yeah. Of course you're going to love it. All right, let's go ahead and get to Us and Them. Our, which people have heard many times for our Rolling Stone review. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I think we need to go back and listen to Oh, for, yeah, sure, sure. Um, I, in my mind, it's like it's an earworm where it's like, I don't know, I was really drunk at the time. Oh, yeah. And I know it's at the end of this. I'm not going to go and find it. But. We're at the beginning of Us and Them now. All right, so this is the one with all the other backing vocalists credited. Leslie Duncan, Doris Troy, Barry St. John, Liza Strike. Apparently, this is an interesting note in my book. I don't know this, but Ain't That Cute, Doris Troy's kind of comeback single that George Harrison helped put together. Mm -hmm. Uh when Apple Records existed. Um, that's apparently where she met Liza Strike and Barry St. John, so they'd worked together before and brought him in for this. Mm. 
so yeah, so this song credited to Roger and Rick, um, like came up on previous episodes. This was originally a song from the Z- that was supposed to be on the Zabrinsky Point soundtrack oh. album. Yeah. Uh, so Rick wrote that I think as an instrumental. I don't think there were lyrics, and then Roger wrote lyrics and they threw it they threw it all together um so just like our idea of using it as a review for the band and the critics it is all the lyrics are you know these adversarial relationships between different people so I do really love this intro with the saxophone solo it is very, yeah. you know, like kind of smooth elevator jazzy sounding, but just in the it's like a love in theme. the best possible way. Yeah, it's so yeah. beautiful. That delay rules too, man. Holy shit! So Davey singing again. I believe he's the only Floyd member Main who sings on, on this yeah. whole album, unless I missed something. I think so. I think you're right. (laughs) Do you think this is one of the songs that you dance to at the ballet? It'd be really easy. Actually, yeah, you're you're probably right. I, I think it could be. want to go ahead and get to any color you like yeah from what i remember there's not a lot of filler though like i think it's just a slow long song and i i do i really like pretty much all of us in them i don't i don't mind now yeah like so far it's good on the album we're off to a very nice start on the second great at a planetarium yeah so any color you like credited to davy nick and rick um it's an instrumental they kind of i mean it was in the in the set but they also kind of conceived of it as a bit of a palate cleanser before like the big epic finale yeah um so it's about three and a half minutes long it's i really like i think the synthesizers are super cool i guess this is kind of my ricky Wright solo to some degree Also, if I had read slightly lower in my notes, Roger sings lead on the song coming up, so. <laughs> the effects on this song are wild for the organ. Yeah, all the weird echo and 
sounds. There's like an echo, a delay, and then I think he's using two organs as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I usually hate that guitar tone. I don't know what that's called. But um, I, do. I mean, he's it's using a lot phaser. of different, but yeah, he's using a lot of different tones. But yeah, I think it is the phaser tone. I usually don't like that much, but man, Davey makes it work. This one is drier than it usually is. Usually it it's sounds not abysmal. So, yeah, it it's is not like, as big and swampy as he wanted. Yeah. This one's like dry and like gross in a different way, but I like yeah. it. All right, let's go ahead and get to brain damage. So this is written by Roger, sung by Roger, uh, and he double tracks his harmonies here. Oh, and then the Barry St. John's guy is credited as singing backup vocals again. Such a great guitar line. This is also a weird one where it's not quite a ballad and it's not quite like a rocker. Yeah. It's, I don't know what, I don't know what to define these songs as. Mid-tempo. They're, yeah, they're sort of mid-tempo actually, I think, maybe. Yeah. Um, I really like this song. It's a good song. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. I like the lyrics. I like, I think Roger's vocal is really nice. Like, I think he does a good job of getting nice. getting everything through but then like kind of the way he's sort of a little like disaffected he's like kind of the opposite of Davey where Davey's so emotional and gets so much kind of tone and grit and then Roger's a little bit like robotic but in a way that I think really works for certain songs like on this one I like it because it's it's a little you know he's singing about the 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 lunatic and it's all this song about insanity and so it kind of works I think with this dispassionate like very calm sane vocal take you raise the blade you make the change you rearrange me till I'm safe you lock the door throw away the key there's someone in my head but it's not me yeah it's a good song it sounds like kind of their earlier stuff a little bit. Yeah, I can see that. In in like a good like their good early stuff. There's <laughs> <laughs> Barry St. John in the background. Oh. Oh. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I also do like that the album title is not a song title, but it's just a lyric and a song. That's kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how it's fun or who it's fun for, but it's fun. You, <laughs> apparently. apparently. 
Uh, that's also a really funky, weird keyboard sound that I like. Yeah, that's also like a phaser keyboard. Yeah, yeah. Thing. It kind of sounds like the weird noise your doorbell makes when it doesn't work, but you hit it and it just like yeah, yeah glitches out. How close are we to Eclipse? Uh, five seconds. Okay, perfect. Because I know they run into each other, so I was like, I didn't want to miss it. Now yeah, we're so we just run straight into Eclipse, which again, like, I know they all run into each other, but just like the first two songs, this could be the same song a little bit. But... That fucking organ, dude. So Roger's still singing, obviously. Um, and then we have back all the backing singers. This song is like so worth the like. If if you didn't like, I liked the song before, yeah. but if you didn't like it, this song is worth that build up. Yeah, it is. This is like. I'm interested. So you one think of the best parts having of the like a really long intro works for this song because it sort of ties in. That's just interesting. That's strange. Not a long intro, a different song. But I mean, it's sort of a you know, just it's essentially a long intro for this song that you think is really. No, because it's not an intro. It's a real song. There's like singing and stuff on it. Interesting. Yeah, it's just interesting. If that last song was entirely instrumental and went into this, I would have fucking hated it. They're doing songs, man. And then it fades out with the heartbeat, right? Yes, sir. Also, a much shorter album than I always remember. I remember thinking it's like this long right. epic album. It's like 45 minutes though. Yeah. 42. Yeah. 43 minutes basically. Um okay, so I don't know if we'll be able to hear this. I could barely hear it on my headphones, but if we go to about 1:30 in Eclipse at around 1:40ish, you're supposed to be able to hear Ticket to Ride in the background <laughs> because a master oh, tape yeah. didn't get erased properly. <laughs> I don't hear it. I couldn't hear it at all there. I heard something. It's I listened to it the other day and turned it like way up, and I heard a kind of noise. I feel like it was like right when the voice started, but it was not like identifiably Ticket to Rise. I'm going to go back and do that again. There is no downside in the moon, really. I don't know. Okay. This book has done that a couple times, especially on like Saucer Full of Secrets or something. They'd be like, there's a weird sound effect here. And like, it's it's really hard to hear sometimes. And then other times I get it immediately. So I don't know. Yeah. Some of it might have gotten remastered out, though. True. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that's possible. I'd be curious to look at is your vinyl like an original pressing? Uh, I mean, I had the poster with it, so I would guess it's at least close, you know, like okay. within the first. I'm wondering few years. if that. Yeah. That's a good thought. I'm wondering if that would have it on I bet it would, yeah. All right. So that was that was Dark Side of the Moon. Do you want to listen to those covers real quick? 
So yeah. let's see. Let we can hear the green sky bluegrass time, and then I also just want to see what the fuck the flaming lips on the run even is. Yeah, out of sheer I was curiosity. It's like you were saying, there's like certain songs you could just cover, yeah. and it's going to sound good. This is, yeah, this is pretty good, I gotta say, yeah. I was skeptical, but this is pretty sick. It, it's great. Do they do a sick mandolin solo? I love a good mandolin solo. As much they as I don't love bluegrass, mandolin is such a cool They do such instrument. a good mandolin solo. We'll wait for the mandolin right. solo. I love bluegrass, by the way. <laughs> I like that Paul Sturgill also Simpson bluegrass album. It's good. It's good. Yeah. I feel like you have to find bluegrass artists that don't sound like every other bluegrass artist, and then you'll like yeah, it. Yeah, probably. Technically, this is a cover of both Time and Breathe. Oh, interesting. Ooh, a little Dobro action. Fuck yeah. What was the Flaming Lips cover they did? On the Run. Featuring Henry Rollins? What the fuck? All right. Anyway, that was that's great, and I li- that. album that they do this on is called The Flaming Lips Star Death and White Dwarves with Henry Rollins and Peaches doing Dark Side of the Moon. So they cover the whole uh, album. Well, that's dumb. Never mind. I don't care anymore. Just kidding. They did it in an interesting way. I'll give them that. Sure. Yeah, that's true. Anyway. All right. Okay. Um, so, that's Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah, want, it sure who is. Who wants to go first? Why don't you go I'll first go first. Well, I have, a, I have a few things that are even before my, my thoughts. So, first of all, I, I thought of this a while ago, and I've been holding on to it to talk about with Dark Side of the Moon, but... Is this functionally their like second or third album? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. It like I mean 
technically no. Uh, obviously, they have whatever seven Let's albums not count in the between. Soundtracks. Right. Okay, then five in between. But yeah. it's it's I guess it's just a little bit weird because like we were saying earlier, where it's holy shit, it's their ninth album. Like most bands, especially of this era, have the creative burst at the or most bands always have their creative burst at the beginning. I mean, and even then, if we go with this lineup, yeah. Like how how many albums did um um we're doing a podcast about the fucking fl- not flaming lips, goddammit. Pink Floyd and I can't think of that guy's name. David Gill. The original guy. Oh, Sid Barrett. He was Sid on Barrett. one. How many was he on? One album. He was just on the one. The first album. So let's say there's five then, yeah. f- including this one. Yeah. Over what, a eight-year period Six or something? Years. Yeah. That's not a great track record. I mean, it's really just like functionally their second album in that that was a distinct sound with a distinct like vision and artistic statement and all that. Yeah. They did not do that again until Dark Side of the Moon. Like, as, as right. good as some of those albums can be, and I think some of them are really great or have really great songs, but, like, they didn't make, you know, for all bro-y intents and purposes, like, a true album until Dark Side of the Moon after Astronaut, or yeah. after um, Piper at the Gates of Dawn. I, I mean, the, the ones that they were trying to be intentional about were the ones that they were like, oh, here's the idea... And then they like barely did it. Yeah, or it was right? like the one song, and it inspired them enough to be able to finish the whole album. But it was still like, yeah, yeah. So, I don't know. I don't think I agree with that exactly. Like, I think it's an interesting thought, and it is kind of mm. true. I think it's mostly just weird because like almost everyone else had their yeah their creative peak on like their third album or something and that's almost a cliche now that like yeah the first album is really good it's hard to do the second album and then like your third or fourth you're back to like being really good because you've matured a little bit and like figured it out um it was definitely different i mean for bands that really started in the 60s like the beatles and the stones it's different just because they spent their first six years turning out three albums a year you know so it's it's slightly different but um still though i don't know yeah I, I mean, I like, think the it Stones wild, peaked like, around the same time the Floyd did, but they also started four years earlier and had put out, like, six more albums. So, like... That were at least, like, listenable yeah. and, like, But then, I guess well. the difference with... The thing that's, like, a little bit interesting is that Pink Floyd, like, this is the start of their golden period. Yeah. And, like, the Stones had, like, their golden period, too, but then they also had, like, a full... 15 years after that of still putting out consistent music that yeah. wasn't that good or inspired. Whereas the Floyd had their like bad uninspired music period early, basically, which is just weird. Like usually that comes yeah. after the inspiration is run out, but instead yeah. due to, I mean, they had kind of a specific career, but still they had their inspiration and then kind it, of broke up. Like so. you were saying earlier, it's wild that it took them nine to get their best album. Yeah. No other band, not a single Especially other band. Especially because they had all the freedom out. in the world, which I don't know, to some degree yeah. I identify with as like a, you know, fellow kind of lazy person to some degree where it's like, I get that, like inspiration strikes when it strikes. And like they are getting back maybe to the idea of them being like not very talented, but still this incredible band. It's like I a little bit, I like... I like them better than the Rolling Stones, but I said this on the Rolling Stone studs where I'm like, I feel like the Rolling Stones a little bit 
are this band that, at least songwriting-wise, are not super talented, but they got all these songs that kind of just, they feel like they fell in their laps a little bit. Like, they got lucky enough to put together this incredible hey, career. lucky. Which feels a little bit like Pink Floyd to me. Like, I feel like they got a little bit lucky that they're all of a sudden like, oh, holy shit, yeah, this is incredible. But then they aren't naturally good enough to repeat that success, essentially. Yeah, or maybe it's like that 10,000 hours thing where they finally, like, cracked it here. They're like, <laughs> we've been playing for long enough. Yeah. We're, we're going to do it now. Gonna figure out something good, yeah. Yeah, and then they did it, and then they were like, okay, yeah. we're going to try two more times, and that's it. <laughs> so, yeah, it's interesting. It's also, like, as much as I don't want to give Roger credit, it's pretty much all Roger. Cause yeah. I think admittedly no one else had any ideas. Like they all contributed amazingly to this and their future records, but it's pretty much all centered around Roger having these ideas and writing like yeah. some amazing well, lyrics and, and stuff. So that's when bands make great albums is when they have a leader or a pair of leaders who are on the same page, yeah. which the Floyd has not had. That's true. They're they, all just their sitting whole thing around has looking been at segmented. each other. Like, do yeah. you have an idea? They're four no, guys no. who are all musicians. Yeah who happen to play together yeah but like it doesn't seem like they've had that connectivity until obscured by clouds which is weird because it was the fucking soundtrack album right right? um and i don't know i think they're they're working together better and i think we'll see that with the next couple albums yeah but then i think that goes away fairly quickly after that um yeah um but i don't know also, PJ, are you familiar with the concept of a Saturn Return album? No, I don't think so. This is a thing I learned about. I do not know if this was like in the zeitgeist before this. Yeah. But I learned about it around the time when Damn came out, the Kendrick Lamar album. There was some mm-hmm. music blog somewhere that had a whole thing about how this was like Kendrick's Saturn Return album, and also here's a bunch of examples of what a Saturn Return album is and what the Saturn Return is. Mm -hmm. So the Saturn Return is when you're 29 to 30, it's when Saturn is in the same, it's like an astrology thing, when Saturn's in the same position it was when you were born. And basically Saturn is supposed to represent like this major kind of emotional change in your life. And so it's really tied to like a lot of kind of, especially with artists who kind of follow maybe let's say a non-traditional like life path. It's kind of the idea being that it's like, this is the moment when they kind of like face up to what their life is and like mature a little bit and figure it all out to some degree. Okay. And so, um, so damn is an example of a Saturn return album. Rihanna's Anti is a Saturn Return album. Kanye West's yeah. 808's and Heartbreak, a Saturn Return album. Interesting. Um, Taylor Swift, I, Reputation. Like, These are all modern examples, which is why I think this is a more modern idea. I don't think this is something that's... Even well, though the 70s think, were huge for astrology. But Sorry, go ahead. Astrology is dumb. <laughs> I wish they didn't call it, it a is Saturn dumb, Return But album. I think it's an interesting idea. It's an interesting thought. Yeah. Like When you said it, I was like, well, it's because they've matured. And then you said that. But I think, like, having a big album right around, like, the second coming of age kind of thing, where it's, like, you're getting out of your 20s, you don't know, like... I mean, we're both kind of in that era right now, where we're, like, 
late 20s, almost 30, and it's like, I don't know. Things do change, and it's weird, you know? Like, you get your shit together, or you decide not to get your shit together, or, like, you know. um, I don't know. I, I like the idea of, like, an album, or, like, albums put out in that time period in an artist's life. Right. That, like, have a similar kind of overarching theme i like that idea Um, saturn doesn't have anything the fuck to do with it but it's also an interesting idea if you really if the saturn thing if you do believe in that and it being that like 29 to 30 kind of period because none of the 27 club ever got there and so it is kind of it's actually i don't know it's at least kind of we don't love any 27 club album really but it's kind of fun to think about though too where it's like i think the person who got closest to kind of confronting that stuff was kurt cobain and like they would have had an incredible like to some degree um in utero was a little bit like had that kind of feeling but it was i think still so reactive that it wasn't quite because I think the idea of a Saturn return album as well is that it's a lot more like authentic kind of to yourself and not anyway. So, yeah, but the Floyd, so we need to make an album. Roger and Davey, I think are both 29 at this time. And so I think just knowing they that love the moon. Yeah, based on, based off of like that idea, I do think it's an interesting and maybe the only new thing we can contribute to the discourse around dark side of the moon. Cause I actually haven't yeah. seen that just like in that there we go. kind of stuff. You, well that, but, and then it's got similar themes to after. That's right. That's right. We got two new Good nuggets on us. here. We're, but yeah, I think I'm going to include myself in this. We're regular music. Dark side is absolutely a Saturn return album and is maybe like, I haven't mm. done a ton of looking into other artists, you know, Saturn return albums basically from this time period. Yeah. But given how famous it is, might be kind of an ultimate Saturn Return album to some degree, just because it is like Roger deals with basically I mean, all the themes of life and figuring life out. And it's also like one of the biggest albums I mean, of all time. 1971, all, three Beatles put out an album. Yeah, true. Yeah. And, and those were all definitely 29 at that I time. I think all their Saturn Returns to some degree. Like yeah. all those albums are very, yeah. very much, I think, them dealing with. Yeah. And figuring all that stuff out so i can see that let's see i gotta figure out our next podcast will be the saturn return album um alums i don't know hmm this does not work with david bowie he was 29 in he was a little bit he got to start kind yeah, of he was old. 29 in 1966 before he had any albums out <laughs> yeah that's what i was i was curious because i I was like oh shit i wonder which david bowie album is a saturn return one that would be interesting but um anyway okay that's why all of them are good so that's an interesting idea all right so let's go ahead and rate this album and give our thoughts those yeah um also we apologize for a long episode but it's fucking dark side side so calm down yeah and you know what it's it's not probably long enough to split into two although i'll leave that up to the end we're not okay so dark side of the moon it's one of the we talked about this a lot a lot on the rolling stone studs it's hard to listen to it without objectively yeah without being like i've heard this a gajillion times before like we said both of us legitimately kind of forgot about all the vocal interview stuff because you've we've just heard it so much you don't think about a lot of those details as objectively as i can I really, really like this album, 
I don't want to skew the rating based on what I think will happen in the future. That's important, I think. It's okay. It's by far the best. Peter, we are fucking thinking the same goddamn it's thing. It's by far the best thing they've done so far. But do I think it's an it's a ten out of ten? No, I I don't think Dark Side of the Moon is a ten out of ten album. It's not a ten. I've out got of 10. I've got some nitpicks, and you know what? I don't think I should nitpick a ten out of ten. Like I think a ten I'm out a of 10, ten out of ten. Even here's Precisely. the thing. We we've talked about this before. Even if a 10 out of 10 has things to nitpick, if I don't care about them, then great. It's a 10 out of 10. But I do care about the nitpicks on Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah. Like, Breathe should be longer. On the Run should be shorter. And it's too early in the album. I like and do not love Great Gig in the Sky. I mean, those are the only nitpicks. But they're enough, I think. Uh, also, weirdly, the second half is way stronger than the first half. In oh, by a in lot. kind of an yeah. odd way, actually. Like, mm-hmm. even though I like on the run, it it almost feels like there's a song missing from the first half. Like they should have had one more quote unquote real song on the first half, because the last song is all except for any color you like, which is like three minutes. It's all you know real songs with like lyrics and verses and choruses. Yeah. Anyway. What did we give Obscured by Clouds? Because I'm going to feel it. We gave Obscured by Seven. Clouds an 8. We, gave, oh, we did both we give gave it 8s. I'm going to give this one a 9 out of 10. I don't think it's perfect. Yeah, I think I this really one's don't. a 9 out of 10. It, it's, mm-hmm. And here's the deal. I don't think it's perfect. It's also just not like a personal favorite of mine in a lot of ways. I love yeah. some of the songs, but as a full album, I've never gotten like obsessed with this album like I have other Pink Floyd albums or anything. Like to the degree where it feels like culture has at large. Also, this is to me like there are some perfect movies in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Where I can watch them and then like two weeks later be like, I kind of want to watch that again. Yeah. And there are albums that are the same way. And then there are movies that are very, very, very good. Right. But I'm not going to, yeah. I'm going to wait a like, year or two I'm before yeah. I watch them again. Yeah. And that's this album for me where it's like i've listened to it now it's gonna be a while before i listen to it again and it's a good listen every time I agree and i with you. enjoy it yeah but it's not one that i could just pop on any time and be like yeah this you know right it's not like in all things must pass for me right where i could literally put that album on at any time and be like this fucking rules yeah um and yeah. so yeah it doesn't get the 10 out of 10 for me i agree um, and i'm glad that we're on the same page about yeah. that because i was a little nervous yeah no, I uh, I almost honestly kind of want to give it an eight, but I'd have to go retroactively change some reviews in the past to make eight like a high mark, you know. So I think it's a nine. I think it's a nine. I think that's it fair. is. It is fantastic, and I will say, like, it's been a while since we started recording. I listened to this for the first time for the podcast like almost two months ago now, and I do yeah. remember the first couple times I listened to it, and that was probably the first time in a couple of years. I was yeah. like banging my hands on my steering wheel in my car, like, "Fuck yeah, this rules." So, yeah, I mean, it is great. All right. It's great. It's just, it's great. Everyone, you you should go listen to dark side of the moon. If you haven't everybody, um, you basically just did. All right. Well, that's been dark side of the moon. We finally did it. And now we can come over. We can come back to the light side of the moon and start talking about all the bright poppy music. These guys are going to make from here on out. I think. Yeah. I think it's going to be a real, walk in the park from here on out. I agree. Well, stay tuned for our 101st episode. Yep. 
where we celebrate having made 100 episodes of <laughs> our podcast. Also, uh, go check out our other podcast, Fake Bands Real Music. Yep, and email us at beachboysboys at gmail.com. And we will catch you on the other side of that moon. And I'll see you on the other side of that rainbow. A Beach Boys Boys production.